I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Iron Man 3 does for feeling blue. Dabba dee, dabba die, dabba dee, dabba die. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are. Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into a spoiler filled discussion of Shane Black's 2013 movie Iron Man 3. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, I thought I'd present you with a little bit of a challenge. Something that you might find tough to explain. But I think it's something that, as comic book fans, we all need to hear at the moment. I would like you to explain the positive elements about the Inhumans... Just tell me, just tell, <laughs> just tell me what there is to like. Give me, I can, give me I can, all of the, the the like the headline grabbing. This is the things that we like about them. I can give you two off the top of my head. Uh, yes. Number one, the fact that Black Bolt's real name is Blackagar Boltagon, which <laughs> yep. will never stop being one of the best things in comics. And number two is Lockjaw, the dog. Yeah, who I mean, is in also, the TV show? So could well be the only good thing about the TV show. <laughs> I mean, they're Jack Kirby creations, so they're on that level. Like the designs are cool, and the characters mm. are like you, you wouldn't you can know imaginative. it from looking at the TV show. But the well, designs quite because cool. they what they've done there no, is. I gone. don't want anything. I don't want any, anything negative. No negativity. <laughs> just just positive thoughts. Just positive humans. Yes. I mean, when you think about it in a sort of objective sense. Black Bolt's character and circumstance and power levels and stuff make for quite a cool combination. I mean, he's really... It is the classic... Um, well, not He's not really like a, a tortured hero, but it's that thing and that particularly Marvel thing of a character with a fear of using their powers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which you, you can see in things like The Thing and The Hulk. Um, you know, that 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 thing of the the powers almost being a curse as much as a blessing, and it is a, it is a really fantastic concept to have a character who he cannot speak because his voice is devastatingly powerful, and it means every um, time he does speak, you're like fuck yeah, 
exactly. It's like every, every time Black Bolt speaks, it's like the bit in Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston speaks. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've I've enjoyed most of, and like I haven't read an awful lot, but I've enjoyed most of my encounters with individual Inhumans in comics. I know she's mostly disconnected, but Miss Marvel is technically an Inhuman, and she is great. Um, it didn't last long, but I thought Mosaic was a fun idea for a character and an ambitious new character when Marvel tried launching that comic last year. Um, and as as a way to launch new characters, the Inhuman seems like a good way of Marvel having the opportunity to do that and not immediately having to hand the rights over to Fox. Yeah. Um, there's, al- and- there's also, um, I mean, two of them... Well, I mean, they're generally quite closely tied to Fantastic Four, but you've had when when Crystal was in Fantastic Four in the sixties, which okay, mixed bag in terms of um, presentation of women there, but you know, <laughs> um, at least did something with her as a character. And Medusa was in was was a member of FF in the excellent Matt Franction and Mike Allred um, FF run. So I haven't um, read that, but I have read little bits of Medusa here and there. I read a couple of actual Inhumans issues, and uh, no negativity. Um, I really liked I liked Medusa as a character, and I read her in A-Force, and I really liked her in that comic, and I liked when she showed up in Miss Marvel, and that her her powers seem fun, and she seems like a pretty like cool, badass, powerful fem- female character that the Marvel Universe could do with more. People, I mean, you, ca- like I, you can't really go wrong in comics with a, a, an often angry regal character. You know, a, a sort of uh, that, that, that that is a trope that I think works quite well. Is that sort of powerful, slightly entitled regal sort of um, figure? You know, <laughs> I mean, they miss such they miss it such a trick, didn't they? Sorry, there. But you, 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 there was such potential for a Game of Thrones. So in 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 the Marvel universe, because who you just described was Cersei Lannister, and I've got Game of Thrones. I've got Game yeah. of Thrones in on the mind at the moment because it's mm. you know because it's just gone away. Um, it just been like popular culture has been dominated by it for two months. Um, but yeah, and then the show the show even cast you and Rian, didn't it? So playing yeah. on those kind of shows, which is my I mean, my, problem- my, my parents who like like they are fans of Agents of Shield, um, and they. I don't think they've seen the reviews, but they've been quite looking forward to Inhumans because they really like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and they really liked him in Game of Thrones. Well, not liked him because apparently I don't watch the show, as we know, but apparently he's a really nasty character in Game of Thrones, but he was really mm. good in it, they said. so he's, He was good at being an evil kid, yeah. yeah. Not, um, not, the, so, not, the most, not the most compellingly written character of all time. Yeah. Might be fair but yeah, so unfortunately they're going to be potentially set up for a pretty big disappointment. But I mean, know, the, um, the problem with Inhumans... Sorry, no the problem with Inhumans was never the characters as such, although some of them, like, I challenge anyone to find something to love about, right. say, Triton. No, no negativity. <laughs> cool, na- cool name, bro. <laughs> like, the problem was Marvel had that thing of they wanted to make the Inhumans into a big property because they had this movie planned. So, basically, they did two, maybe three years of Every story is going to be Inhumans related, and you can't get away from them unless you want to. But they've kind of, they've been around for a lot longer than that because of, because of these links back to the Fantastic Four, and because there was even then the interesting stuff going on with characters like Miss Marvel on the sides, and like Black Bolt was a member of the what was it called Illuminati. The, 
Yeah, the Illuminati. So, I mean... Oh, yeah, like, they've been on the fringes, but it was when there was, like, this push to create lots of new characters and call them Inhumans, and it's like, the only Inhumans anyone cares about are the royal family and, latterly, Ms. Marvel. But what 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 they tried to do with the Inhumans was use Inhumans as an alternative to mutants. I mean, we we know that. I'm yeah. sure we've discussed this on here before. It was when the whole stuff with X Men rights was going yeah. on, and you know, it, it was a bit of a lashing out at the X Men. But what they wanted to do was build a new set of characters, and in the same way as you'd had forty odd years of when you need a new character and you don't want to have an explanation for their powers, they're a mutant. The new thing was when you want to have a new character and you don't need an explanation for their powers, they're an Inhuman. And that in itself wouldn't necessarily have been the worst idea because with something like Miss Marvel, the fa- I mean, okay, they have yeah, kind of made reference to and brought in the characters, but the fact that she's an inhuman is incidental because what's good is the character and the story. Mm. Um, the problem, I think, I, I think the mistake was using Inhumans, which already has the the royal family and this kind of franchise element attached to it, although not the most prominent thing in Marvel. Using that instead of just coming up with something that was basically like mutants, but with yeah, the serial I mean, that was the, there off. It was should have that, been an entirely separate thing. There was because that now thing you've just got this people, confusion of the two different types, you know. There was that thing of people feeling like we're getting all these Inhumans at the expense of the X Men, and that like the X Men mm. remains, despite Marvel's sort of reluctance to emphasize and exploit the property, like it remains hugely popular. So but again, to skew all this back positive, it sounds like there is nothing inherently wrong with the concept of Inhumans and that more it has been the execution of how Marvel has tried to make us as an audience invest in Inhumans mm. and maybe um, forced it a little bit. And maybe, and maybe that's why sometimes the storytelling hasn't been the best because it's been a little bit too mandated. It's not been someone yeah. who's coming, well, especially like who's you've coming with a great idea. Like few franchises can handle having like four ongoings based around one property and it's like like i say there's one group of inhumans that people care about and ms marvel who was a kind of happy accident and everyone else like all the other inhuman characters like even you get warren ellis and do a karnak solo book it's like karnak is cool when he turns up but he doesn't have much of an interior life to draw on and even warren ellis struggle to conjure one up i i bought that until i lost faith in the issues coming out yeah <laughs> and that was after that was after two issues <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay well um hopefully that's a bit of positivity around the inhumans <laughs> i would maybe um i don't know I, I i i think it would be good to try and seek out some good inhuman stuff to kind of to kind of uh it, you want you want the uh, Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee series, I think, is the because that's that that's the one that sort of the, that reestablished them in in the modern era. And <laughs> yeah, and it's also tw- like twenty years old almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, God, it is, yeah. But it's like that. That's what they should have done this time, really. And I, you know, I hate doing that. Oh, they should have done this. But if they wanted to do an Inhumans movie and or an Inhumans TV series based around the actual royal family, they should have just put out a really good comic. Um, by some, not necessarily by, but by someone like Tom King to do like a vision type thing on it and just mm-hmm. do a really strong creative story about this really good concept, which yeah. is this secret hidden royal family, um, of a, of a race, you know, with superpowers. Yeah. As um, opposed to just flooding the market with inhumans related ideas. 
Exactly. Most so of which were forgettable and quite bad. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and have those ideas not actually be directly connected to the characters that you're going to make a movie about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to this week's comic book movie and TV news then. Um, not an awful lot to talk about this week. There's not a lot of new news, so we're, uh, we've got a couple of fun things to talk about, but we will address the kind of the one big news item that has broken. Um, and that is that Colin Trevorrow is now back on the market to direct a superhero <laughs> movie. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, I, I know there are Star Wars fans dancing a jig this week. Um, Man, I've, but, I've never seen anyone get piled on quite so much as Colin no. Trevorrow got. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because like, Jurassic World was like fine. If, if they made a Star Wars uh, movie as lot, good as Jurassic World, people would a eat lot, it up. A lot of people hate Jurassic World. And I think that... I think no, I think if Colin Trevorrow had made a, a Star Wars film, anything like Jurassic World, be, with the nostalgia plays and with kind of some of the ways he approaches character and some of the some of the shortcuts he seems to take as a director um, and some of the influences he comes in with, I think they would have been furious. Oh, um, come I on. think this is, and I really do, and I think this is a good thing for people who loves Star Wars. I, I also think that the hate on him is unfair. I don't like any of the films he's directed, um, but I also I like think... I not guaranteed. I, I think it's maybe his worst movie. Um, but, <laughs> oh no, I have no, the book, the book of Henry does exist. But uh, but yeah, I, I really... I, I, I feel for the man on a personal level, but I also think, isn't it interesting... How Marvel has been hammered for being this kind of, <laughs> you know, this this horrible yeah. like anti filmmaker, and I mean, just just considering the film we're about to discuss, you know, the fact that Shane Black can go in and make a Marvel movie, and yes, it's not going to be purely his vision at the end of it, but it's going to be a collaborative but vision between a, between yeah. him and the <laughs> studio. It's not a, it's not a pure Shane Black hit like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but it's not far off. Um, Whereas at Star Wars, uh, you're probably going to get sacked at some point during the filmmaking process. Dropping directors mid-film. It's literally like J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson have, have wrote it out. Um, Gareth Edwards, uh, Lord and Miller, Colin Trevorrow, not so lucky. So that's uh, 40% of directors have stayed, <laughs> have stayed the course so far. I mean, my, like, incredible. my opinion of Star Wars fans is that they will consume literally anything regardless of quality (laughs) like i just i don't see how someone anyone could make a star wars film that people would not go and see and like okay they might complain about it but they'll still turn up next time go and see it yeah yeah but would would what if what if um uh infinity war is an absolute clusterfuck you're turning up for part two james (laughs) yeah but at the yeah, same time, there we go. <laughs> at the same time, if it was like I'm trying to think of like a really like okay, Suicide Squad two, like bearing <laughs> in mind that I'm not as like full of hate for that movie as some people are, like I thought it was entertainingly bad. Like I'm not going to go and see a sequel unless it gets like stellar reviews slash we need to do it for the podcast. I was going like, to say, oh, yeah, James, James, we need to do it. For yeah, the like I'm not, you know, recreationally putting money into watching <laughs> that. Well, anyway, okay, that's a good transition point because the Colin Trevorrow thing was literally just a gag that we've now talked about <laughs> for five minutes. Um, 
<laughs> uh, so let's talk about the actual news from this week. Suicide Squad 2 has a writer and director. So that chimes with the news we had on the last podcast, which was that we expected Suicide Squad to be the film on DC Slate that was being fast-tracked um, in the development process amidst all of the kind of other Joker slash Harley Quinn slash Batman-related <laughs> movies on their schedule. Um, and that writer-director is Gavin O'Connor. Um, now, Gavin O'Connor, for anyone who doesn't know, um, I guess he Hello. he had he, he had directed. <laughs> there we go. He had directed other films before. Um, his big breakout was Warrior, the uh, Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton, Nick Nolte, Oscar-nominated um, uh, mixed martial arts movie, um, and it's really, really great. Is it's this really kind of stripped down primal film about masculine masculinity and mad manhood and brotherhood and family and nick nolte having the reddest drunkest face you'll ever imagine and drunkenly rambling about moby dick it's it's wonderful <laughs> um he um he then he directed jane got a gun he was the director who stepped in uh late after um it was oh who was it uh who stepped away uh, we need to talk about Kevin. What's her name? <laughs> oh, uh, Lynn Ramsey. Um, yeah, uh, Gavin O'Connor was the director who stepped in to direct that after Lynn Ramsey kind of exited a day or two before shooting was scheduled to start. And then last year, he kind of had a bit of a disaster critically uh, with The Accountant, although that film is um, potentially getting a sequel. So, uh, yeah, Accountant, the... Ben, ben Affleck, uh, Anna Kendrick movie. <laughs> so that's that's Gavin O'Connor. That's the guy they've brought in to direct and write Suicide Squad 2. Um, and I, I, I don't know, you guys. I don't feel like Suicide Squad 2 is irredeemable um, because it's got Harley Quinn and it's, and it's got Deadshot and it's got Will Smith and it's got Margot Robbie. And I think that's kind of all you really need to get going. And if they are actually developing a Joker and Harley movie, and we can keep that fucker out of the movie entirely, <laughs> then let's let's just do a movie where, hey, we're the bad guys, except this time they actually are, you know? I, I think you have a greater vision for that movie than the people making it. But, but Gavin O'Connor is the person making it, and he has in the past shown himself capable of making good movies. Is he the person making it? But I was going to say, do you do you think in any way that Suicide Squad will be uh, Suicide Squad Two will be the singular vision of whoever gets hired to make it? Because... No, but I also don't think that the DC. I also don't think that the DC movies are under the same creative control that they were during the Suicide Squad production process. Um, it seems like a lot of stuff has changed. We are in a post-Wonder Woman world, for example. Um, we are in a in a DC universe that is, that is potentially post-Zack Snyder. We are in a... Uh, I think Jeff Johns now is a lot more active in, in running the whole thing. Um, and I do think it seems like a bit of a creative mess... Um, but I think now they've seen what critics and audiences have responded to in Wonder Woman. And I, yeah, I'm not going to say I expect this to be a good movie because I don't, but I, 
you know, ever the optimist, I think there is potential for Suicide Squad to be a good movie. Uh, Suicide Squad 2 to be a good movie. Um, having said that, I think Suicide Squad is potentially the worst movie we've ever covered on this podcast. <laughs> mm, I think we covered something two episodes ago that's worse. <laughs> it's not, I mean, there's really not, there's not much difference quality-wise there. The final cut of Suicide Squad especially. Wait, three just, episodes just to... ago. Not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Valyrian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. Um, yeah, uh, so I don't know. Uh, like, have either of you guys seen any of Gavin O'Connor's movies? No, no. Okay, so only I can really comment then. Which, and I haven't seen the accountant, so I haven't seen his. In fact, I think all I've seen is Warrior. So my my view of him is, yeah, yeah. And he made he actually he actually uh, directed the pilot of the Americans, which is a fantastic hour of television. So, hey. Uh, let's let's uh, I don't know. Let's cross our fingers as as we do with everything that the DC universe turns itself around. Or as we've said, maybe if they just occasionally pump out a really good movie, like once every two or three years, give us a Wonder Woman. I think <laughs> I, I think I can sit through the nonsense to get a Wonder Woman every two or three years. I mean, I just, again, it's the whole oh, are we being relentlessly negative about DC thing. It's like it's not that I would want this to fail. Um, I would love to see a good Suicide Squad movie because there I've read some great Suicide Squad comics. I just I don't think DC want to make what I think. I was going to say it's, it's not the movie. filmmakers I don't trust. It's the um, machinery behind them because yeah. it has repeatedly produced some absolute toss and sort of accidentally made Wonder Woman. <laughs> is the impression that I get. Like if they if they were doing what Marvel do and like they have a sausage factory that reliably churns out four star films like i'd be over the fucking moon the thing is i mean as well i mean it's not even just oh i think the the system is broken or anything or or, or anything like that so much as i think that for a suicide squad movie to work it needs to be more like the suicide squad comics from the 80s this won't be that this will be a sequel and in a similar style to the first suicide squad because the first suicide squad was a hit i mean we we can't deny that it was a hit so, from DC's point of view, making another film like <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, and, and the question is, I can't really criticize them for <laughs> the that. The question it's is, like, like can you can't Gavin O'Connor Michael Bay for keeping on making Transformers movies? Yeah, you know, can Gavin um, O'Connor make a Deadpool movie? Is the question we're <laughs> asking ourselves now. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, for, to work a Suicide Squad movie, either needs to be like the '80s Suicide Squad comics or like Deadpool. Which is what they tried with the first one, but yeah. did not succeed. And it's right. what they'll be trying. Aim- well, it's what they'll be aiming for with the second, isn't it? So yeah. Oh, guys, mid podcast, we got some breaking news. At literally as we record, as I talked about, as not having any real major <laughs> news to talk about other than the Gavin O'Connor stuff, we've got the biggest piece of news of the week. Drew Goddard will direct and write X Force. Ooh. Whew. That's exciting, isn't it? So, Ooh, it's exciting for me. As reported on Deadline, uh, Fox have set Drew Goddard to write and direct X-Force, uh, the X-Men film, spin-off film that will re- revolve around Deadpool and Cable, leading a Black Ops force of down-and-dirty mutant warriors who are far more ruthless than their X-Men counterparts. Um, now, So they're basically going to do Suicide Squad better than Suicide <laughs> Squad. <laughs> well... Yes, but also what that 
what that um, synopsis, as much as uh, Deadline have written it, screams to me is that this is a film that is literally in its logline almost saying, and the sequel has the X-Men in it. It's it's leading to an X for X Force versus X Men movie or something along those lines. <laughs> it has to be from from that synopsis. Um, so, what, I mean, what do you think? First of all, Drew Goddard. I mean, he's a name that like bounces around this kind of stuff for us all the time, doesn't he? So he was he he's obviously out of uh, James the, the the kind of the Buffy mm-hmm. school. He did a uh, first um, series of Daredevil or a big chunk of it anyway. Yeah, well, it's. Well, I mean, we've probably gone through this before. He worked on Alias and Lost, yet, um, yet was the showrunner of the first season as Daredevil to begin with, um, until scheduling conflicts came up. Yeah. So he's been an exec producer on Daredevil and The Defenders, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in the woods. And, yeah, he Martian. was. He, it, yeah, wrote the Martian. Yeah, but uh, su- superhero wise, he was, he was the guy who was going to be doing the Sinister Six for, um, for uh, Sony, Sony back when yeah. they had their their amazing Spider-Man universe, and he's still kind of like being linked to coming back to that, even even post the MCU getting involved. I didn't realize um, he, he's actually also co-writing Deadpool too. Uh, is that is that a thing? Is that out there already? Uh, looking uh, on his Wikipedia page, it says story by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, Wikipedia, screenplay yeah. co-written with Ryan Reynolds and Drew Goddard. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense, but it doesn't. Yeah, it's, it doesn't wait, that's say on his, that. That's on his Wikipedia yeah. page. That's on his Wikipedia page. It's not on uh, Deadpool 2's Wikipedia page, which just has it as written by. Uh, Interesting. Did we report? Uh, I I think maybe um, maybe he he's doing a punch up or something on the script, mm. which might, which it, or maybe he'd done some rewrites, especially if they'd kind of lined him up for this movie. I was going to say yeah, it would make sense. It looks right. like it, it was back back in February. Just googling back in February, he was being reported by Collider and CBU. No, CBU ones. Collider and Nerdist had him on the Deadpool two script. Okay, uh, so what? Oh, what and that Cinema pro- Blend. Very so what that probably suggests is that he was coming in. He was getting involved and working on with X Force. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe not even on Deadpool two at all. But and, and if he was, it was probably in the way that Joss Whedon was involved with a couple of the films prior to the Avengers. Um, the other thing with Drew Goddard is like um, I seem to remember us thinking that he was kind of a name that was being bandied around for what ultimately became Spider Man Homecoming at the time as well. So he's a, he's kind of a name that in in comic book circles is kind of always around. And it there's certainly a, there's certainly a feeling with daredevil i think that some of the best stuff potentially came out of what he was involved mm-hmm. in early on if you for me anyway daredevil was strongest out of the gate and has kind of failed to return to those levels since um, yeah well is it episode two is the courtroom episode that was one of the best in the series yeah, he actually wrote himself uh, into the ring and cut man, which were two of the <laughs> earliest episodes of Daredevil. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, I, I, I mean, True Goddard is a name that I think you get kind of excited about when he is around this kind of content, and I'm not surprised that he has become attached to another superhero property. Um, <laughs> I'm relatively sure that even. Like that, Drew Goddard can even cut through the morass of badness that stops the 
Fox films from being as good as they should be. Well, and supposedly he's working, you know, he's working from pretty solid foundations given the success of Deadpool, which I rewatched again recently, actually. It's, it, it holds up. It's still, I think it's still a, a three star movie, but it, it, it holds up to that yeah. standard. Was, was funny a second time around. So, uh, so yeah, bit of breaking news to you there. Um, and, and it sounds like, um, Josh Brolin and Cable are in for the long haul if they are, <laughs> if it, if it is a, x-force led by those yeah, two characters. well it gets the stamp of approval from me so i think brolin will be around for longer in the in the x-men universe than he will be in the marvel <laughs> cinematic universe if i had to guess we should uh we should offer our condolences to jeff wadlow then for his pitch being rejected ultimately oh was he attached director of kick-ass 2 was pitching for x-force around the time it came out okay well that was breaking news um we'll return to our regular programming and uh, we'll move on to uh, not strictly news because that basically is all of the actual news. Um, but Seb, we wanted to have a quick conversation about The Tick because um, it's been on Amazon Prime for a few weeks now. Uh, the first six episodes of The Tick starring uh, Peter Serafinowicz as The Tick and um, Griffin Newman as Arthur. And um, largely, if not all, possibly directed by Wally Pfister, um, the former Chris Nolan DP who shot the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of like binged all of these in two sittings um, on the first two nights it was released. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've mentioned on the podcast before that kind of like my favorite podcast at the moment is actually presented by Griffin Newman. So I've kind of like had a tra- had a trailer for this show um for like pretty regularly for the past for the past few months and have been really looking forward to it and for me um it it kind of lived up to expectations so how how did it uh how did it sit with you um well i mean uh, anyone who if if there is anyone who reads the website uh, may already know this because I, I did publish a review the other day mm-hmm. um because I, I i didn't watch it quite as quickly as you i think i did it over about a week's worth of train journeys, um, working my way through it. Um, I didn't also didn't watch the pilot last year, so the first time I watched the pilot was as part of watching all six together. Yeah. Um, I was hoping for a fun superhero comedy with Peter Serafinowicz in it because I absolutely love Peter Serafinowicz. I really, I think his sketch show is one of the most underrated British comedy shows of the last twenty years or so, and I think he's fantastic. Fruit bomb, bomb, bomb. Um, <laughs> Sorry, James. What 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 was your comment going to be there? <laughs> I I think it's very idiosyncratic, but I think I'd find it hard to call it underrated because I watched all of it and just sat there stony faced the whole fucking time. Ah, well, I really I really like it. I think there's loads of great stuff in it. Anyway, um, but no, I was I was kind of blown away by how much I liked this. Um, I'm not a big fan of The Tick previously, not in a disliking it sense. I've just never... I'm aware of it, and I've seen... I was aware of the live-action show, and I've seen some of the cartoon, because everyone saw at least some of the cartoon when it was around in the 90s. Um, But actually, that's not really an impediment to this, because one of the interesting things about this is that even though Ben Edlund has written a lot of the show and is very heavily involved in it... um, it is a total revamp of the concept and he's very different in this from how he is in the previous versions and Arthur is even more different from how he is in the previous versions but I just thought this was brilliant um, it's not perfect, it's, it's definitely got got flaws, I think what's really interesting about it is that 
like people would talk about the tick as being like a parody or a satire of superheroes and this kind of has elements it, it's, of that it's there isn't it but it's so it's, but it's, it's so it's, dialed down yeah it's only re i think it's only really a, a pastiche in the sense of it uses the archetypes so you've got a superman character who is literally called he's called superior it's mm. one letter different um you've got overkill who is hilarious who is like ba- every he, he's Batman Meets with Knight the Rider. Punisher, with, with uh, Punisher with Knight Rider, with every Rob Liefeld character from the nineties. Uh, just you know, the <laughs> obscenely ultra violent mech ninja guy, and he's got uh, he's got a talking, with Alan Tudyk, yeah, talking as, boat, voiced by Alan Tudyk, doing doing basically his rogue his Rogue One bit from last year, but with more. Stats. Oh, I was going to say he's. I was going to say he's he's doing Jarvis. It's basically a piss take of Jarvis. Well, I yeah. thought, uh, which okay, that is slightly pastichey, but. What I like is that while it does have that element of pastiche, the act, the story and the drama and the characters are played straight. So it, it's funny. It has jokes and it, and sometimes it's really funny. Um, but there is drama to it. And again, it's... I've made this comparison. I, I said it on Twitter and I said it on the website. It reminds me of the Giffen and Dematis, uh, their Justice League, and also a series of theirs called Hero Squared that was a creator-owned thing that they did. In that, yes, it's it's funny, but you know, it it doesn't cheap out on making cheap jokes out of the story. the 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 drama is real, and the jeopardy is real, and mm. it makes you care about that. Um, and the backstory stuff that for Arthur, again, it's sort of it's a little bit cliched. The thing of uh, so the thing with Arthur in this is that he's this kind of he's this neurotic um, accountant who essentially has long term post traumatic stress disorder yeah. from the fact that a supervillain killed his dad accidentally while deliberately killing his favourite superhero team in front, in front of, his of eyes. him. It's like the Fantastic um, Four have been bru- and it's 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 really dark that flashback yeah. scene. It's really dark. Um and yeah it, what what I really like about this show is that, that it does all feel under underpinned by this the, this trauma that the characters have gone through. And what I didn't expect to see was to see that from the character of the Tick himself. You start to, you've got, you've kind of got Peter Serafinowicz doing, doing a, like, not a million miles away from the take that Patrick Warburton gave in terms of the, you know, hello chum, and all all that kind of stuff. But it's got, I think it's got more of a glimmer of humanity in the middle of it. And you do get the sense of every so often, like, I think there's an episode of the Patrick Warburton tick that like the whole joke, the entire episode is that the tick is like, he's come out of nowhere and he doesn't know where he's from. And this Mm. woman turns up claiming that he's his, he's her husband and that he's been missing for weeks. And it's just, it's all play for laughs because the tick that tick sitcom was essentially super superhero Seinfeld. Um, Whereas here that you kind of like use Sarah Finowitz plays it so subtly, but there are there are hints every now and then that like, God, how tragic is it? This this guy kind of doesn't know where he's come from and kind of it is well, is, a, is kind of a lost soul in his own right. And you've got these two lonely characters, and there's the there's the tiniest hint as well that he mm. is he is possibly born out of I was going to say Arthur's yeah, I, trauma I think and Arthur's loneliness, so he's kind of like a personification of that. that. Yeah. 
because Arthur initially thinks that he's imagined him completely until other people start to interact with him. But there are definitely other hints that, like, the tick does not exist when Arthur's... Actually, no, no, he does exist when Arthur's not around because he does have scenes with other characters. I think it's that... He did not exist before before Arthur was around. And if he spends an extended period of time away from Arthur... He starts to lose it a bit, like he he's more forgetful and doesn't really know what's gone on when he's been away. Um, I mean, I, I think I've, I've sort of gone back and sort of, and I'll, pr- I'll probably try and watch it more in full. But I've kind of gone back and, and looked at some bits of the the Patrick Warburton stuff as after this, kind of as a comparison, and sort of the, I may be misinterpreting this, but kind of the the, the difference I felt was that um, in the Patrick Warburton stuff, the tick is kind of. A big dumb goofy idiot. Yes. And in this, he's a big dumb goofy idiot who just wants to give the whole world a big hug. And that's what I like the most about him, is just that he's so optimistic. And it's like he's kind of like a more childlike Captain America, mm-hmm. in that he just really has this pure sense of good about him. And I and I love especially when he gets put in opposition to Overkill and then sort of teams up with him and is just constantly chiding Overkill for killing villains, but um, you know, he he just has this kind of purity of heart, and it has again. I'm, I'm you know I'm sorry for anyone who for the five people who did actually read it, but like repeating stuff that I said in the review. But you know, for something that's a comedy, um, for the most part, as although as I say, you know, it does get dark in places as well. It's got a scene in in the sixth episode that is just it's just pure great superhero. The the scene with the bus. Yeah, it's one of those moments that comes along that is just this is what I want out of superhero stories, and it's obvious and it's cheesy, and you know exactly what's going to happen. Although there's a nice little undercutting punchline right at the end of it, but like the the heroic punch the air moment when it comes, you know it's going to come, but it's just still so great when it actually does. And um, I, and I think one of I, I think one of the things the show does best. And I did read this somewhere else. I can't remember where. Um, but the like its successes, as close as I can remember to layering over a superhero universe over the real world. Whereas mm. it it feels like Arthur is a character who exists in our own world. And I, I've I've read comics that have done this from time to time. Mm. Um, in I've fact, seen people compare it to Kickass, and actually, I mean, with, if you take some even more of the cynicism out of Kickass than the movie did. Um, then I think I don't think it's a million miles away. Yeah, I um, I read um I read Plutona last year. Um, and I I got a similar vibes to that. That that's kind of like a story about actual characters and their actual mm. kind of like their their individual traumas interacting in a world that exists with superheroes flying around mm. and kind of occasionally bumping into their real lives um the other um the other really obvious comparison point and now that i think of it i'm amazed we haven't done it on the podcast yet um is mystery men it's really not a million miles away from that inter- and mystery men has a similar thing of on the surface you would think mystery men is just a piss take of superheroes but actually it's got that sense of earnestness underneath it that mm. that this has got as well um and we're, g- we're gonna have to draw this to a close but some of the other things I particularly enjoyed the performances of Michael Severus as um, Ramses, uh, who is just um, <laughs> I- incredible as, as as one of the villains, and Yara Martinez as Miss Lint. That and, character is great. Oh, it is yeah. just such a fantastic idea. She is a character who has kind of electricity powers, but the constant static that her body creates causes Lint to come and stick to her. And it's just, it's 
they don't spell it out early on, but you kind of notice mm. it. And because Wally Fister is such a great, or was such a great DP, he's able to capture it really well. This this kind and it's of, and it, like, but it's not played as again. It's another thing that it's not a piss take. It's not played for laughs. Like it, it's it's, it's the source it's of funny, her name, but it, and this is the source of her like resentment and like it. It all feeds into her character, and you get jokes out of it, and there's yeah. little moments with it, but. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was, I, I was genuinely in stitches a couple of times with lint-related humor in this. Um, mm. but also, yeah, it's, it's really enriching for the character. Um, I'm looking forward to going back and rewatching this. Um, I think the, when you were talking about it not being perfect, my major issue with it was the pacing. Um, I think it's paced re- uh, kind of ploddingly at times, and I, 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 I didn't, feel like I had been fully sated by the number of episodes that they released. They've deliberately filmed the entire season and only released half of it. The next half is going to be released early 2018. And I, 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 I personally do, I personally think that's a mistake. I do like that it's that it's got an arc. I think because it, well it's got it's part of an arc. It's essentially a first act. And the way the what the last two episodes do in that they look like that. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's like they look like they're heading towards the big confrontation with the villains, and then actually that doesn't really happen because that's essentially you can tell that's going to be the second half of the season. Um, but what it does do, I think, you get the emotional kind of, if not closure, the emotional satisfaction of it reaches a point where the pieces slot into place in terms of. Arthur becoming a hero and and Arthur and the Tick and and what they're going to go on and do. So I I like that. Um, I would agree that yeah, it's you know, it would be nice. In terms of only having the six episodes, it's more that I would just like there to be more of it. Now I just I just want to go on and see the rest of it. Mm. Um, so and and yeah, I mean it. It's a little what there is is a bit slight for the number even though there are only six episodes and they're only half an hour and I think the pilot's slightly longer. Um I think around the second and third episode it is quite slow in terms of everything that like the first three episodes do could be done in one episode. And then I think four, five and six, four is the nice self contained one with the party that I think works really well. Mm-hmm. And then five and six are kind of essentially a two parter and I think are really strong. But yeah, I think up until it hits the party, I think it starts to meander, and then I think the second half of the season, I think, well, the second half of the half season, I think really nails it. Also, I do, th- I mean, he's been turning up in a lot of this type of thing recently, because obviously he was in Preacher last year as well, but Jackie Earl Haley, you sometimes can't understand what he's saying, and what's really annoying is the very last line of the half season is a brilliant joke if you understand what he says, but I couldn't tell what he said, I had to rewind it and put the subtitles on to hear the last to understand the last line of the show but he's a really like if if he wasn't in a comedy he'd be like one of the scariest supervillains i'd seen in ages his voice, like, he's, doing, he's, he's really doing like creepy. Old, old man voice isn't he yeah I like, I, and like I the like design the is great yeah. there's an element of magneto in there but like magneto with a kind of hideous freddy krueger-esque face underneath yeah um and yeah it's um you know that, that's what i mean about you know the the serious elements are actually um, that's not he's not played for laughs, although he does get jokes. So um, yeah, it's just it's as I say, I keep coming back to the the Giffen and Dematis comparison, and it's like that's what I like out of my superhero stuff is a nice mixture 
of the serious drama and the comedy. Spoilers for my opinion on the film that we're going to discuss in this episode. But... <laughs> well, um, I think probably the best way to approach this going forward in the podcast is maybe to do a full episode in the show once it's actually wrapped up its first season, once we've seen the mm. whole thing is in its entirety, because it really does feel like we end on a cliffhanger and that we've kind of got maybe act one of the story out of the way. Um, and so I'm, I'd be intrigued uh, to talk about it once it's all wrapped up. And all I will say for the second half of season one is more Francois Chow, please, because he is a delight in this. And I, you, oh, him and Peter Serafinowicz in that episode four that you were talking about, <laughs> said, oh, yeah, wonderful, <laughs> so wonderful. Okay, well, as I said, um, no, not really any other movie TV news this week. It's been a quiet one. So we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Shane Black's 2013 movie, Iron Man 3. This episode of Cinematic Universe is brought to you by our backers on Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe, uh, you will see that we have revised our rewards and tiers system on there. And one of the changes we have made is that if you back us at the $20 level, we will plug something of your choice in this special section here, the this episode is brought to you by slot. So if you have a look, think, is there anything you would like us to promote on a future episode, then you can throw some cash our way via Patreon. And this is the point in the podcast where we will tell all of our listeners that this episode is brought to you by you. Got a lot of apologies to make. Nothing's been the same since New York. They experience things, and then they're over. I can't sleep. And when I do, I have nightmares. Honestly, there's a hundred people who want to kill me. I hope I can protect the one thing I can't live without. a teacher. Lesson number one. Heroes. There is no such thing. Okay, so that was the trailer for Iron Man 3, um, a film that we've been looking forward to discussing on this podcast for quite a while. Um... But Seb, you wanted to kick us off. You you had something you particularly wanted to talk about to kick off this discussion. So the floor is yours. Yeah, I just thought it'd be fun to go back with this one. Uh, because obviously, as we know, this is quite a contentious movie within uh, comic book fan circles. Um, and I wanted to go back to April 2013 when this film came out and when it was reviewed on the popular website Den of Geek by uh, a certain James Hunt. Um, now, James's review of this film, actually, I mean, I, I think this is quite a restrained review. Um, it was only given four stars, not five, which I think is, is an argument that you could have about this film, whether it's a four star or a five star film. I wanted to give it five, but I was arguing. <laughs> good, good, right. good. Five is insane for this film. 
<laughs> well, let's let you, that's not the conversation we're having right now. Um, and you know, James's review—it's it's praise, but it's qualified praise. Um, I think he uh, just scrolling down the review, he says. Um, uh, in short, it's all great fun. Where Iron Man 2 felt like a fumble on a perfect pass, Iron Man 3 feels like a success against the odds. True, it isn't perfect, he says, but most of the time it's great. Much better than Iron Man 2, quite probably better than Iron Man 1. It's a triumphant return to form for the franchise. I mean, it's it's praise, but it's qualified praise. Nevertheless, I don't do any other comments. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, um, this review uh, attracted quite a bit of ire from the the commenters on Den of Geek, <laughs> and I just uh, ahead of us, you know, spending what will probably be a good hour or so, I think, mostly praising what is, let's face it, a really great movie. Mostly, I just wanted to go back and share some of the comments uh, from the on this review um, in the style of Adam Buxton's bug, where he reads out <laughs> YouTube comments from people. <laughs> Um, so I've got four comments here that I'd like to read out for you. Uh, the first one is from uh, Logat890, uh, the 890th of the Logats. Uh says, <laughs> Sorry, don't agree with this review. The movie sucks. The trailer show the Hulkbuster armor, but doesn't actually go use. The worst sin of this movie is that the Mandarin is actually a dud. Worst bait and switch move so far this year. I'd like to know what other bait and switch moves from that year um, he's ranking above it. Um, but there you go. Uh, second comment uh, is from Matthew. I have just seen the film, and Marvel cannot be happy with the direction they took Hat Film. They completely took the film <laughs> off topic. They completely took the piss out of Iron Patriot. They made the Mandrain fake, and they didn't give Tony Stark the extremist armor. And I, I've said armor as he spelled it there. Um, you can go and look to, to verify. Um, where's my Mandarin? Uh, so he obviously has a bit of an agenda there. Says, bet you're sorry now. Den of Geek seems to be geek by name only. Do you even comic book? <laughs> and uh, and Han Solo. Uh, I didn't realise that Han Solo had such strong opinions about superhero movies. Uh, but he says, worst movie ever in superhero history. Even worse than Spider-Man 3. Why this review is saying all this crap? Disney pays you to make good reviews about bad movies. It doesn't matter how old are you, you could even be five years old and this movie still sucks. How can you even say that it is a triumphant return of the franchise? I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks like this. Please, everybody, go watch it and be ready for the worst. There's a part when Tony plays James Bond with a gun he made with Home Depot stuff just to mention something. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so I can, James, I can how, listen to how those can you things. argue with any of those comments i mean first i would sort of teach them basic reasoning skills <laughs> you know maybe a course on constructing arguments okay so i i have a couple of points i'd like to make in response to what seb just raised um i'm just looking at movies that were released in 2013 uh some other bait and switches um john <laughs> john harrison is actually khan Okay. Um, <laughs> I would say that's worse. Yeah, to be honest, um, yep. the world's end was actually about Brexit all along. Um, Possibly bl- worse in terms of how it affected people's perception <laughs> of what is otherwise a great movie. Then yes, <laughs> that's a bad take. Uh, obliv- obliv- Oblivion. <laughs> there's lots of Tom Cruise clones. Um, this is the end. Channing Tatum was the gimp all along. Um, and Man of Steel, Superman was the villain all along. So those are the <laughs> those are the other bait and switches from 2013 movies. Um, uh, second point, and this is this is slightly more serious. 
Um, I think that we have probably said out loud before that um, if you don't like this movie, uh, Iron Man 3, I'm talking about, you're wrong. And uh-huh. that you're potentially wrong um, for, 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 for for reasons we would like to judge you personally for. Um, I would. I, 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 I think have I would never like seen to say, anyone criticise. I've, I've never seen anyone say that they strongly dislike this movie. Pretty much for any reason other than because well, of the Mandarin. So, but I would, I, I would like to say, if you're listening to this podcast and you're going, I, I don't really like Iron Man three. As you know, um, I would say frequent pod collaborator Amon Warman would say, not his favorite Iron Man movie. Doesn't really get why it's so highly praised. Has no problem with the Mandarin thing. There are people. Okay. There are people. <laughs> there are people out there. There are people out there with that opinion. That opinion's fine. We don't. We like the movie more than that. Um, I, you know, I think we'd all have this squarely in our top five MCU. Probably top three for most of us. Um, not, not for me, but but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 yeah, maybe not for me either. But I, I think I probably like the movie least out of the three of us, and I still think it's really, really great. Um, so yeah, the, what I basically want to say is if you don't like this movie because of various <laughs> reasons, it just, it just doesn't work for you. We're not, we're not judging you. If you don't yeah. like this movie because they changed the Mandarin from a racist stereotype and pulled the rug out <laughs> from under your feet and pulled off one of the greatest movie bait and switches of all time, um, then, then you're a fucking yeah. Idiot. Then you're wrong. Sorry, but you're wrong. It's so good. It is it's, so so. It's not good. just that it's a great idea, and it is a great idea. It's that I just don't understand how anyone could come out of this film not having loved every single moment of Trevor Slattery. <laughs> it's oh. just so funny. I, I remember. It, I think it pops. I think I it does. When I, I bear, bear in mind how much I love Guardians of the Galaxy. It's the funniest thing that has been done in any superhero <laughs> I do, movie. I do think it works better for Brits. I remember, I don't know if you guys were there, um, because this was pre-podcast. Um, I was in the press screening at the Odeon Leicester Square for this movie. And at the moment when Trevor Slattery comes out of the bathroom, wafting his hand in front of his face. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of... and. It took the whole audience two or three seconds to kind of clock what was going on. No one in there, it felt like, had seen this twist coming. And again, it's one of those <laughs> perfectly played twists because of the timing it comes in the movie and because it's coming at the end of this, like, uh, low-budget... Yeah, well, like it, like it, Almost like a heist um, montage for Tony Stark where he's breaking mm. into the building and you're like, what are we going to find inside? Um, and you don't even imagine it, that it it can be the Mandarin because we're not ready to see the Mandarin yet. He's the big bad. It must be Aldrich Killian or it must be James Badgedale again or it must be... And then the whole audience in unison absolutely mm. cracked up. And then, I, I, I was there for that same screening. Yeah. I, I do remember that reaction. Yeah, just, I think we must have all been there. And, yeah. and, <laughs> the, and, like just, it, and then the, that, that entire scene then felt that it was just punctuated by like this just, this incredible energy in the room where everyone was kind of going, like kind of jaw agape by what they'd managed to pull off. 
but then the gags that they were delivering in quick succession. The fact that and he that, was there watching, think... watching the Liverpool game on the TV. Like... Martin Skirtle is officially in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because you see his shirt number and his name. So he is. All the others might be fictional footballers, but Martin Skirtle is, is real. And, 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 um, then, and then, like, the, his. What was it? I heard his Leo was the toast of Croydon. I, 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 yeah. just, and I think that's the kind of stuff that. Because because Kingsley is playing a British lovey actor, mm. um, I think I think that particular character construction construction works really well for a British audience. And that kind of gag that the fact that he's watching the, the he's watching the Liverpool Chelsea game on the TV, and you've got the Croydon drop and, and all that kind of stuff. I think it's just perfectly attuned to us. Regardless, yeah. though. I mean, I, I just the brass balls that it took for them to to do what they did, and I mean they've taken the flack since. But this must be the only example of like people coming, like people coming out and praising a comic book movie, and and like the audience turning against them for it, the fanboys <laughs> turning against them for it. It's, it's normally the opposite. It's usually the other way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, I mean. <laughs> We'll we'll get into. I don't know if we are we front loading this too much with just talk about the Mandarin, but it, it is the main kind of elephant in the room. Um, if if your problem is solely that you are a, a big fan of the Mandarin and and you wanted to see the Mandarin done properly, um, on the one hand, I would be more sympathetic if it, if it was about the specific choice of character and you wanted to see that character done properly. I can see that point of view, but I think with the Mandarin specifically, it's wrong. What I can't get on board with is the idea that, irrespective of which villain it is, doing this undercutting thing is a bad idea because it's it's so timely. It, this idea of constructing a supervillain to put in the media, um, and I, I mean, I love the fact. That, I mean, it, it's not explored hugely, but the fact that um, the way they get the Mandarin out there is through broadcast signal intrusion, which is a, a pretty niche thing to be interested in, but that I'm quite interested in and that freaks me out. If you've never heard of Max Headroom signal intrusion, go and look it up and watch the video, but be warned <laughs> when you watch the video, it's really it can really freak you out. And just imagine what that would have been like to have that suddenly cut into your TV viewing. Um, you know, that, that thing of you're watching television, which is this safe thing, and you know what you're supposed to be watching, and then all of a sudden something completely unauthorised cuts in on it, is is great and it's and you know it's so i mean it's weird to say that it's so of its time because like post 2016 um like all bets are off and anything like you know nothing from before 2016 can now feel uh relevant because all all the rules have been broken if you see what i mean so you know all of what this does with even the kind of the moral ambiguity over the president and you know um, being critical of America's role in the world has taken on a completely different tone now, but for for 2013 and for the for the um, you know the way that terrorism and the media interacted with one another at that point in time, um, it's it's so on on the ball and so on the nose and just yeah I think it's um, I just think it's such a great thing to do with a movie like this that completely wrong foots you. Yeah, and, and makes utter sense. I think we should get as much of our Mandarin discussion out of the way at the start of the podcast so we can dig into all the other stuff because this film is a film that I, I think one of the other reasons why we're going to praise it so much is it has, um, despite I think a film that was kind of assembled to a degree in the edit and that went under, 
uh, underwent a lot of rewrites, admittedly with the same writers. This was written by Shane Black and Drew Pierce. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to kind of the stuff with Maya Hansen and the original plan for a female mm. villain, all that kind of stuff later. Um, but for all of that kind of production stuff, all of that kind of what you expect from a Marvel movie, um, it's a film that has like some very defined through lines in there. And the whole idea of, besides the fact of the Mandarin being a rug pull, the whole idea of a villain for Tony Stark not being just another guy who turns up in a suit. Well, like, okay, who is Tony Stark? He's a guy who ostensibly used to be a bit of a bastard and kind of left all of these kind of like threads out there that have come back to haunt him. And we've seen that in other films. And these threads come back to haunt him in his life here. But also... You want a villain for a for a guy who is the world's biggest, like the world's biggest, most famous businessman. Well, how about a think tank comes up with a villain for you? Like, how <laughs> yeah. about a, how about a think tank constructs that villain, and then your actual villain? You know, in in twenty thirteen when this movie came out, but like in the kind of in the post nine eleven war on terror era. You don't, it's very rare post Osama Bin Laden to have a face that you can put to these, Mm. to these atrocities. And the idea of the villain actually being a guy who has constructed this idea, this figurehead who can be hunted so he can kind of hide behind it is, is brilliant. And it's, and it's a great way. it's, It's, it's a great thing to put up against Tony Stark. Um, and also to follow up with what you said, Seb, about, uh, the Mandarin and kind of the fans being, the fanboys being angry about their villain being changed. Well, the argument that Drew Pierce and Shane Black make on the commentary, if you if you're filling in your cinematic universe bingo cards, Joe, watch the commentary. <laughs> um, they said, well, like we do give you the Mandarin. Aldrich Killian says at the end, like you know. Mm. He was my mouthpiece. He did all the things that I, I did. All the things that you thought that he did. He said all the things that I wrote for him. I am the Mandarin. <laughs> so basically, what you've got is you've got this character dressing up like the character you're expecting to see. You've got the other character over there pulling off the same actions. You, you, what, what did you did you just want the racist cliches? What is what from the Mandarin are you missing in this movie? Or is it that? The fact that someone called out all of those racist cliches and went, you know what, we don't want to do that in twenty in twenty thirteen. That's that's not what we're <laughs> that's not that we don't think that's a good look to put out there. So what's so what is the problem for those people? Because essentially, this movie, one way or another, ends up having the Mandarin in it. Yeah, I mean it's weird, isn't it? Because the like they still kept a lot of the aspects of the Mandarin that were, that play up to that. So like, he's got a kind of an accent that is sort of vaguely foreign and he's got like the robes and the jewelry and the tattoos and stuff that, that make him a sort of cultural outsider. So it's not like they junked everything in terms of the depiction of the Mandarin as a media figure. All they did was strip out the sort of yellow peril 1950s throwback stuff. So, like, if, like, you're never going to see that version on screen because it's too racist. But they still had every aspect sort of portrayed. Yeah. So, like, I just, 
I don't see what more they wanted unless it was magic rings. Hmm. <laughs> okay, well, shall shall we then talk about maybe the complaint in terms of villains that there, there probably is some validity to, and then we can kind of go around and maybe head back to the start of the movie and look at Tony Stark's arc through this movie because uh, that's one of my favourite things about it. Uh, but the, the <laughs> thing I will openly criticise this film for, and I think you can really see it on a rewatch, is uh, the, the the kind of the idea that in the original draft for this movie, Drew Pearson, Shane Black, um, said it at the time of release or kind of referenced it at the time of release. In the first draft, Maya Hansen was the villain. Um, and I think they had multiple other characters there. I think probably there were... The, there was an Aldrich Killian, there was a Mandarin, um, and and maybe even some others in there as well. But ultimately, the major villain was going to be Maya Hansen. And obviously, they cast Rebecca Hall. And I think even probably at the first time of shooting the film, she was going to have, during actual principal photography, she was going to play a bigger role. By that point, the script, well, the script had undergone massive rewrites anyway, but she wasn't still going to be the major villain, but she was going to play a bigger role than she ultimately did. I do find it really interesting that it keeps the line that I assume dates from one of those drafts when she was going to be the villain, when she turns up at the house and Tony says, are you the Mandarin? And it's like, that, that is so... <laughs> that, that line works if she then turns out to be the mandarin like so much of this film um, seems like it's building too so I, and and i think the middle of this film it gets to a point where you're like you you need to stop undercutting at at some point here because it's all going to become a bit too much but you you can see the cogs turning mm. to a point where you've thought that ben kingsley was the mandarin and he wasn't. He was a puppet of Aldrich Killian. And then you you can see the cost turning to the point where Aldrich Killian thinks that he's been running this whole thing. But actually, no, he hasn't. It's been Maya Hansen all along. He's been the mm. tool. He's been the tool to achieve what he wanted to achieve. And now this nutty villain is kind of going off on one monologue too far. And she kind of... At the moment where he shoots her, that's the moment where she should almost shoot him and go, Yeah, okay, actually, yeah. <laughs> you've, got, you've got me where I needed to go, but I'm not some monologuing supervillain. I'm actually a real person. And, um, you know, I've got legitimate gripes. But also... And also that classic kind of villain thing of, I actually think I'm making the world a better place. Hmm. Um, and I, I think a, 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 that's. I just think I think that's more interesting than what we ultimately get mm. with Aldrich Killian, who I like Guy Pierce. Uh, I I don't think, especially once you get down to the to the final act, I don't think Aldrich works. I think he is the weakest part of the mm. film in terms of like not replaying really into the thematics and having a kind of. Well, see, this this is what I, an interesting I, backstory, I guess. I, I mean, the, as as it plays out in the you know the actual version that we got, he is kind of a retread of Justin Hammer, but just a yeah, more yeah. a more sort of you know even a down more, a more successful. Yeah. Version. What if and, what if you just cut out Aldrich Killian and it's Justin Hammer? Well, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would it actually be that different? I think there there is a way that I think Aldrich works quite well thematically. And it's in that version that you just talked about, where you, where you, and where the viewer and Tony thinks that Aldridge is is the villain, and then actually it's Maya, which is 
both Aldrich and Maya are characters who, at the start of the film, get rejected and sort of cast aside by callous Tony in those early callous Tony days, but in different ways, which mm. is that, you know, Aldrich is, and this is where I'm going to get in my obligatory mention of the fact that he is literally just um, Edward Nigma from Batman Forever at the start of this film. Mm. Like, he is exactly the same. I really, um, I really don't like the... I, I, I think the flashback stuff doesn't the flashback stuff of Aldrich doesn't play right mm. it, it feels totally but, off with the rest of the movie but what I like is the what happens with Aldrich um and also what happens with Maya where you know Tony kind of has this conversation with her and has the stuff about the working on the thing with her and then sleeps with her and then never sees her again um you could see that years down the line Tony would look at Aldrich and if he remembered him would go, oh yeah, that's a guy that I just, you know, completely blew off and I can understand why he's become a supervillain because, you know, I rejected him and so he's turned against me. And that he wouldn't necessarily think it of a woman that he's had a one night stand with. So I quite like the idea that you think it's going to be Aldrich because he's been rejected in one sense and then it actually turns out to be Maya because she's been rejected by Stark in another sense. But that, as I say, I just I, I could see that it wouldn't occur to Tony that she would harbour that resentment towards him the way that Aldrich does. But whether that it, was the I mean, way they is... would have gone with it, I don't know. But it's you know you don't get. I was going to say end, it's sort so. of weird. Like, how would it change the reading of the character if it turned out like? she was upset because Tony Stark dumped her. I mean, I'm not like, saying that that would be the, the sole reason for her villainy, but I think, you know... And also, I, of, sure, I, like, I think you are also, the way that she plays in the movie, I think you're setting up a, le- a, a more nuanced character than that. Because, I mean, the scene with her and Pepper's great. Um, it's also my favourite, my absolute favourite moment in the... Um, commentary, Shane Black and Drew Pierce are talking about the scene where... Rebecca Hall and Gwyneth Paltrow are having that conversation and he's like oh and this is the scene we were under pressure to cut this from the movie but I really wanted to keep it in there um, because this is the scene where we've got our two female characters talking to each other about something that isn't a man so this is where we pass the mm. bechamel test it doesn't it doesn't pass bechamel no, because the, they're talking about <laughs> but but according to Drew Pierce it does pass the bechamel test Oh, does he actually say Special the best test? Oh, God. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, you were so keen to keep this in because you thought it was passing the Bechdel, and you actually think the Bechdel test is the Bechamel test, oh, God. which, I mean, is delicious, I mean, but completely it does wrong. Just about, it does just about pass Bechdel. Yeah, but I don't, they, don't they? No, because they talk they're talking about Werner von Braun, so they are talking about a man. So. No, there's there's like a two sentence exchange where oh, they're not okay. talking about a man. Yeah. Incredible. A- anyway, um, I, mean, I, I think I, do. I think it should. What what we should mention though is that, that what Shane Black said about why the movie that essentially we're saying right here that we wanted that makes more sense is not the movie that materialised. He said on the record this was when he was promoting the Nice Guys last year. Rebecca Hall's character was bigger at one point, and we reduced it. And this is uh, an interview of Uprox that I'm reading. Why? Rebecca Rebecca Hall's character does have an abrupt ending. And he said, All I'll say is this. On the record, there was an early draft of Iron Man 3 where we had an inkling of a problem, which is that we had a female character who was the villain in the draft. We had finished the script. 
and we were given a no-holds-barred memo saying that cannot stand and we've changed our minds because after consulting, we've decided that, to- that a toy won't sell as well if it's female. So we had to change the entire script because of toy making. Now that's not Feige, that's Marvel Corporate, but now you don't have that problem anymore. And, say, and we've, Uprox, got, we've got Thor Ragnarok. Well, and Uprox, got, and Uprox so. said, Ike Perlmutter is gone. He went, yeah, Ike's gone. But New York called and said, that's money out of our bank. In the earlier draft, the woman was essentially Killian, and they didn't want a female Killian. They wanted a male Killian. I like the idea. Like Remington Steele, you think it's the man, but at the end, the woman has been running the whole show. They just said, no way. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the, really... The most bullshit thing about that is that they didn't fucking make Killian toys anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, thing... absolute nonsense. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's just, I mean, that that's kind of the stuff that Hollywood has been dealing with for years. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the good news is that four years later, it's not like everything is better or anything, but we can, we can actually see definable steps in the right direction that Thor Ragnarok is coming out with his female villain and everyone's really fucking excited, mm. not just about the female, about the film having a female villain, but about that female villain in particular. Yeah, and I, I think as as disappointing as that is, and as much as so frustratingly it would have made, it's not even just oh, isn't it? A sh- isn't it frustrating that yet another superhero movie has done bad by its female characters? It's no. On this occasion, it would have made the movie discernibly better from so you can you can mm. just you can see it right there you can see it in the finished product that- it, it's also and this isn't you know sort of quite the same reason but it is also disappointing that this film doesn't have rebecca hall on screen in it more i love rebecca hall <laughs> i really really love rebecca hall i i can think of few times where rebecca hall's been in a movie and i haven't gone Do you know what you're fantastic and mm. um I'm looking forward to catching up with Christine when I get the chance. But yeah, just even, even kind of like smaller movie when she when she's the when she's the lead in a smaller movie or a small part in a bigger movie, she's uh, she's great. And yeah, it's just a shame that she that she kind of like she just becomes kind of a back a background player in this. And the fact is that the killing of her doesn't really work as a rug pull moment in and of itself. It's not that big a surprise because we haven't really gotten to know her that much up until then. The only thing that makes it remotely surprising is like, oh, really? You aren't going to do anything with that character? Hmm. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that is that is my major criticism of this movie, I would say. I had a couple of like more... I remember at the time having a couple of quibbles about it and about the ending in particular, but I think the ending... The ending on a rewatch um, works. Well, I the think, ending I think takes just... on a different shape when you've had everything that's followed it, rather than you know when we didn't know what was coming um, in in twenty thirteen. Yeah, and I think so... maybe I think maybe I hadn't quite tracked the kind of the emotional journey of Tony Stark throughout the film well enough for that final moment to land. Whereas I think on a rewatch. Um, well, I'll be honest. <laughs> On many rewatches, it's become clearer to me what the arc of Tony Stark is throughout this film. And I mean, he, I mean, I... He, he says it out loud. It shouldn't be that hard to figure out. But like, <laughs> he's. I mean, it's it's difficult because like he's especially because do you remember all the weird stuff about this was the first Marvel film to shoot the extra scenes for just the Chinese audience? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And there was the stuff with the, the with the doctor from the flashback sequence at the start. And I think in China, Chinese audiences got a scene where he kind of almost goes to him and like it's yeah. all to, it's all to do with getting the shard pulled out of his chest. So at the end of the film, of our version of the film, where all that stuff seems to come really fast, where suddenly, and then I got the I got the piece of shrapnel removed, and like so I don't really need the art reactor anymore, and I'm blowing up all my suits, and I don't need them anymore because I'm Iron Man. And I was like, wait, what? What the fuck's just happened there? And I think on a rewatch, it becomes clearer that what the film is, the, what the film has been grappling with is two things: it's Tony's PTSD, but it's also Tony's kind of like. That line in the Avengers, that amazing line where Cap says, take away the suit and what are you? And Tony has the great retort. But what this film digs into is, what about the guy below? Does the, does Tony Stark actually believe that he is more than the Iron Man suit? And this, this is a film that kind of tears him down. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And asks him for a large stretch of the movie in the middle, what are you without the Iron Man suit? Let's do let's do an Iron Man movie where Tony Stark doesn't really have access to his suit for a large, large portion of it. Um, even in the final, <laughs> even in the final sequence, the suit is like he's in and out of the suits from second to second. Well, there's Pete, mm-hmm. th- th- there's actually two really great rug pulls in this movie, and the one everyone remembers is the Mandarin one, yeah. and the one that I had completely forgotten about every time. Um, every on this time, rewatch. Seb is that he's not in the suit in the Barrel of Monkeys oh. sequence. It's an amazing <laughs> moment, even though the film has already set this up. Like, it's it's Chekhov's gunned. It's like, yeah. it has already set up that he doesn't need to be in the suit. Um, we, you know, we've had Spider-Man Homecoming that has a whole sequence where he's not in the suit. Yeah, it's been very much established that if you see the Iron Man suit, it's not necessarily Tony. But that sequence, which again, you know, if we will come on and maybe discuss it in more detail, but which is an incredible sequence... You're so caught up in that, and it's so well cut and edited that you just believe that he's there, and then that moment with the truck and the cutaway, it's just, let's, that is like, that is a perfect Iron Man Let's talk about it now, moment. because we're bouncing, we're bouncing around everywhere anyway. <laughs> I mean, the, what's, what's, what I love about that sequence is, it is, it's a pure superhero rug pull, because it sets up that classic dilemma of, I've got your girl over here, I've got this other threat over there that you need to save. 
what are you going to do? And another an, another Batman Forever type. Well, uh, no, I mean another <laughs> another dark another Dark Knight. I've got Harvey yeah. over here. I've got Rachel over here. Who are you going to go save? And that's a great that's great because it has a rug pull of its own. Um, I've said that phrase about seventy two times on this podcast. <laughs> I refuse to say it again. Um, but this this is great because it's just the mind man goes. Tony's like, oh yeah, I'd fig- I figured it out. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm still on my way to that other thing. Uh, whilst, <laughs> and then you're like, oh my days, I've just watched this spectacular action sequence. Because that se- action sequence is it's, breathtaking. It's like, it is one of the absolute greatest superhero <laughs> It's because it's a, it's a rare instance of a sort of modern superhero doing classic superhero action. Yeah. They are, because they are, like <laughs> it's visceral well, they do as so well, much. isn't it? It's really visceral. Like the the people falling through the air. It's something that you can so easily place yourself into that situation. And because it's <laughs> because it people falling through the air doesn't happen in like a quick mm. like bang 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 jump out of the way. So it's it's happening for an extended sequence, and you're just <laughs> watching these people potentially tumbling to their de- their deaths while Iron Man kind of calmly, kind semi calmly. Calculates his plan I mean, to that's, save them. There are, that's, there are... one of, that's one of the things I like is that, like, most superhero films now use action as a metaphor. And so, like, it's all, the fighting is all about the character stakes. Whereas this was, like, this was a sort of pure su- superhero moment of bad stuff is happening, but Iron Man's here to fix it. And it's, like, it's a kind of classic. It's 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 a, set piece it's that, a Superman that, scene. It really yeah, is. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, Su- Superman would be able to just fly and catch everybody. It's like it's Tony it's Tony Stark being put in a Superman situation and having to solve it the Tony Stark way. But in terms yeah, of how it looks and how it plays <laughs> out, I mean it obviously because it's a plane and it's falling over the sea, it's like it really reminds me obviously of the really fantastic and anything else you might want to say about that movie but the plane rescue sequence in superman returns is like i (laughs) I will not hear a bad word said against that scene except possibly for the fact that it's got kate bosworth in it um but it's just it's just such an amazing sequence and this felt so much like that and i kind of think the the visual of it is deliberate because that is a you know again for a movie that's not really held up these days it's it's an iconic sequence um, and this this is kind of almost doing Superman better than Superman, really. Well, th- I mean, the thing that makes it good is that there's a limitation on what he can do. Exactly. And, like, yeah. you, you watch him solve it in real time. Mm. But that's this and, entire like, that's movie. That's what's cool about it? it. That's this entire movie for Tony Stark. He is having yeah. these yeah. limitations placed on him time after time. I mean, like, he, uh, he has his best friend taken away from him essentially early on. He's separated from Pepper. His suit is taken away. Jarvis is pretty much a non-entity in this movie. Uh, Shane Black hates Jarvis, by the way. <laughs> really hates Jarvis. <laughs> uh, it, it, hearing him having his little mini rant about it was really funny. Um, but I also, I also think, I do think there are, I think there is metaphor going on in that whole sequence because beyond the beyond the you take the suit away and what are you 
and that kind of the neuroses behind that for Tony. He's also he's also having this PTSD from the Avengers, which I I think is really great because they don't lean heavily on the Avengers. They reference it. I think this is probably the best example of Marvel doing something in a solo movie that refers <laughs> yeah, back really to overpromised in terms <laughs> yeah, overpromised in terms of the shared universe going forward, didn't it? Yeah, because I mean, again, this was the movie where like everyone was going like, oh, well, why aren't Thor and Captain Captain America and all his buddies turning up? And it's like. And Marvel like, oh, you'll figure out later on down the line. And it was just, there is no reason. It's just like he's he's doing his own adventure now. You don't need to just stop it. Like <laughs> he's <laughs> off the grid. He's doing his own thing. Don't worry about what that where those other guys are. Suspend your disbelief for a second. Um, and but yeah, I I think the 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 PTSD stuff is really nicely it woven in the identity crisis stuff in terms of what am I without the suit? But then you do get the sense of like, because of the PTSD, they say there's a line very early in the film from Jarvis where he's like, may I remind you, Mr. Stark, you've been awake for 72 hours. And the idea that Iron Man in his kind of search for what am what am I without the suit? The line between Tony Stark and Iron Man for Tony has been so blurred that he doesn't, that he doesn't really know the answer to any of it anymore. He doesn't know what he is without the suit and he doesn't know what the suit is without him, kind of. So, like, you you get those scenes where, like, the, the Iron Man armor kind of, like, attacking Pepper in the middle of the night, uh, almost in, like, a, a horror sequence and Tony having the armor do stuff for him, with, like, ha- having him actually interact with Pepper through the suit. And this idea that, like, being Iron Man is kind of and the neuroses that he's having because of being Iron Man is kind of tearing his life apart. And that's why I think, I think the ending of the film really does thematically work. This realization that there is, it isn't just the suit that he is a hero. This, this film is, is a journey of him as an individual figuring out that he is a hero. That is not just the suit. Um, but also that he doesn't need to be confused by the blurring of the lines. The fact is there is no suit in him. He's Iron Man. And when he's wearing the suit, he's Iron Man. And when he's not wearing the suit, he's Iron Man. And come, get into grips with who he is as an individual. And I think it's it, funny. I think it tracks. I think that, I think the whole Tony Stark act tr- arc tracks really well. And it's juggling three or four different major themes with him. It's, it's quite interesting that I, I've read that, um, like, earlier drafts had the last line of the movie be I am Tony Stark and like <laughs> that completely <laughs> undercuts what the like the whole point of the film is leading up to that line of Tony Stark without the arc reactor not in an Iron Man suit saying I am Iron Man that is literally what as you said what the whole thing is about so I find it bizarre that it didn't always have that last line because wouldn't make I mean, sense that, to me. Like that's the serendipity of movie making, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's like how things come together in the shooting and the edit and stuff. It's like they don't necessarily know what's going to work and what isn't, and they'll put it together as best they can at the end. 
And obviously, it's a nice little mirror back to the first movie of him saying, I am Iron Man. But well, I think yeah. that, that's why originally it did have him say, I am yeah. Tony Stark, because it was supposed to be a mirror to the first one. But actually, no, it, it needs to have him say, I am Iron Man as well. What I did like about this movie, though, and you see so, so many trilogies, and I think it works for some of them. And I think there were some nice moments, for example, in Captain America Civil War that referred back, you know, the, I mean, but mind you, Cap says all this, all, says it all the time, you know, I could do this all day and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you get, I mean, the, I mean, the Dark Knight Rises had it. A, a bunch of trilogies end with kind of like referring back to, and TV show, I mean, Game of Thrones has been doing it all season again. Like, even <laughs> in its penultimate season, it seems to have been echoing season one at every opportunity it can. Like, literally having characters repeat lines and stuff like that. That's kind of the only thing that references back at all in Iron Man 3. It doesn't. It doesn't refer back to the Avengers more than really acknowledging that Tony had that adventure. It doesn't. It doesn't kind of play on any kind of themes or ideas from the first two movies. And the fact that they brought in Shane Black and Drew Pierce, it's it feels so drastically different. And I have to say, so I was. Um, I, I'm planning get, on getting back to my Marvel rewatch, but I kind of watched Iron Man through to Iron Man three, that block of the MCU, in the space of about a week, and it it is quite jarring how different this movie is to the first two. Um, and obviously, the first two had the same director and whatever, and but just like every everything feels like a, a step different. And you know, the fact that it opens up with the voiceover is it's Shane Black making his own movie. But an Iron Man movie, and he he doesn't seem that concerned. He's like, great, I've got this. I've got Robert Downey Jr. who's constructed this great character to, <laughs> to play with. But I'm not really interested in doing any of this like fan service. I'm just gonna make. I'm gonna make my movie with this great character in the middle of it, who I, who I, I who mean, I know is ready made and built to do the kind of patter that I've built a career on. I sort of think that was deliberate on Marvel's part because. Iron Man 2 was their attempt to follow up like and do a genuine sequel to the first and it sort of missed its mark and so all the sequels that followed have been like they even went to the to the extent of not numbering their films yeah. in an attempt to make them be standalone entities so like Thor 2 shares almost nothing with Thor 1 in terms of theme and character like Aside from the relationship between Thor and Loki, it's all all new. And Thor 3 looks like it's going to be, you know, well out on its own again. And then, I, and I guess Winter Soldier couldn't have been more different than Captain America purely by virtue of setting. And then Civil War couldn't be more different from the first two in that it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, you know, I think you're right that they, that this is a, a very different sequel and probably the first sequel to be that different just by virtue of being like the first post Avengers film when all the others were leading in and you know Iron Man got the head start or whatever but I think it's that's been their approach since has been new ideas new themes let's not do a retread because we did that once and it screwed us yeah should we should we talk about Tony Stark as a character because I think We'd seen glimpses of this vulnerability in the earlier films, but I think what's so striking about this is quite how on the surface it is, like quite how 
from word go, it's clear that he does not have his shit together. And, like, literally having panic attacks in front of children in public. Yeah, in public. <laughs> that scene, like, the scene where he, like, has a panic attack and goes and That's hides in the armor. harrowing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, like, really... Like, I remember watching it in the cinema and just being like, wow, like, what the fuck? Like, he's really messed up. And the... And again, I mean, we, we we were kind of talking about this kind of stuff with the tick. I think it's uh, fun that we were uh, nice that we were able to talk about both in the same podcast. But the way that like when Tony gets to the small town and he's doing the stuff with uh, Ty Simpkins, that you've got him kind of breaking down and having a panic attack in front of this kid, and it's still it's still funny. And I wonder whether it's because it's got the rhythm of the Shane Black patter, but like. It's it's funny, but it's it's also kind of you are genuinely concerned for Tony Stark. You're concerned because it's this it's this real vulnerability in a character who you can see is actively striving to be good and striving to be better, um, and kind of but but being haunted by his past. And I love I love the tonal balance that that Shane Black is able to achieve in this movie with with that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that that's one of those we're silent because we agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's much more fun when we disagree. <laughs> well, let's let's talk. Should we talk about the Ty Simpkins? Uh, the Tony hangs out with a kid in a small town for a. Oh weekend. yeah, because actually th- this was an element that James was critical of in the Den of Geek review, but I think this really works, and oh. I think it undercuts, and uh, I think it plays with a, a genre convention quite well. And I think it's fun. You and J- you and James argue for a bit then, because I've talked so much. I, the thing is, I sort of I object to comments I made four years ago being used to <laughs> as a back because, like, like all reviews, like you see the movie once and yeah. then you bash your review out quickly, and you don't get time to properly digest it. So, uh, like these days, I I don't know what I said in that review originally, but I'm nothing but. Uh, amused to watch the little kid stuff. It's great. It's like it, Tony Stark is just the perfect type of character to put in that situation because even though he cares, he won't show it, and so it it the film and the character will actively not let you go into the kind of schmaltz that might happen. And you do get the moment at the end where he sent him all the stuff, which is a little bit, but you know nothing. Well, there's there's two moments that that sum up why that stuff works so well. The first one is like the even more so than the Trevor Slattery stuff. The best line of the movie, which is when he says, "You know what keeps running through my head? <laughs> Where's my sandwich?" <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and also, I I feel like him asking for a tuna fish sandwich is a deliberate Calvin and Hobbes reference. It it feels <laughs> like he is Hobbes to I don't even know the kid's name, but to the kid's Calvin, um, and the yeah that bit as you said the we're connected bit when he just drives off is that is just you know that is the perfect way to play that with that character and it's just, it's just tremendous fun. Um, I I think you just you have to be. I feel like if you think if you think that that stuff is a typical Hollywood. Oh, there's a bit with a cutesy, annoying kid sequence. You're deliberately misunderstanding what it's doing because what it's doing is playing with that convention. I mean, this this is it. this is the quote from very early on in the scene. Um, Tony, who's home? 
Well, my mum already left for the diner, and Dad went to the 7-Eleven to get scratches. I guess he won, because that was six years ago. Tony. Hmm. Which happens. Dad's leave. No need to be a pussy about it. Here's what I need. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> it's just wonderful. I mean, like... Tony Stark calling an eleven-year-old kid a pussy is just—it's <laughs> just hilarious. And yet, you know, in that same scene, you've got the whole thing of he immediately. Now, admittedly, it's probably fairly obvious, but the way that he picks up on the "oh, you're a kid who's being bullied at, at school," and it's just, you know, um, he is showing like compassion and care in the way that Tony Stark does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. It's weirdly in 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 a scene where Tony Stark is refusing to connect with someone, where he's refusing to show his emotions. It is, uh, I think it's a, a sequence. The entire sequence in that small town is where you kind of you you feel for him the most and you identify with it. It's it's almost more tragic for him as a character that he can't that he can't acknowledge any kind of camaraderie with this kid. Like, that even... At- Especially because that kid is, like, clearly supposed to be him on some level. Yeah, like, yeah. he's he's the, he's the smart kid in the town. And, like, yeah, the, the we're connected line at the end, like, to the very last line, <laughs> so he can't, he can't be nice, he can't even party with, yeah. like, oh, you did good kids. Like, he's still, <laughs> he's still a dick to him at the very end. And that's, I mean, we should say, I mean, this is... You hire Shane Black. You kind of, you kind of, to an extent, know what you're going to get. Um, and this is, I mean, this is again why I'd come back to the whole thing with like, I can, I can never really side with Edgar Wright on the whole Iron Man dispute. Drew Pierce, uh, sorry, uh, Shane Black is one of the guys who like he writes and directs his movies. That's what he does. He came as this movie, and Marvel went, "You're working with Drew Pierce," and apparently Shane Black went the fuck I am and then kind of learned to, like words with Drew Pierce for a bit and got there and the you know like I just feel like if you want to work with Marvel as it seems like a, a lot of directors have been able to do you have to kind of compromise and acknowledge you're half making your well, movie you're half making the studio's movie and that's what you get from Marvel and I think when you watch Iron Man 3 you get by and large a Shane Black movie. Well, you get a Shane Black movie, but if they, if Marvel hadn't told Shane Black he was working with Drew Pierce, you would not have Trevor Slattery. Like, yeah, very possibly. Yeah. The whole thing of making the Mandarin, as as he's presented, be an actor was Drew Pierce. Well, no, the 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 thing of him not being real came from Drew Pierce. They sort of discussed it and worked on it. The idea, and think it, I think it was probably Shane. I don't know if it was Shane Black, but who said, you know, well, you know, he's actually an actor. And then all of that character stuff, obviously you can tell because he's British, but that stuff came from Drew Pearce. So it's like you you get like 90% a Shane Black movie with these additional things that make it even better because you've got Drew Pearce in there. So I think you know, for imagine, me, the thing that if... Drew Pearce did was like bring in some real idiosyncrasies to the script. And like it's clear from his other stuff that he's a superhero nerd I was gonna say, in yeah, like there's a, there's a legit an way thing we'll talk about later yeah yeah um, but but like as a film it feels like the reason it's my favorite marvel film and to some extent one of my favorite superhero films is that it has so much character that you can't find anywhere else because it is like it's so obviously the product of these guys rather than sort of corporate strategy 
Yeah, I, I, I was going to make some more Edgar Wright gags, but I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll refrain. He's got enough problem where I, I guess Baby Driver did all right, apparently. Somehow. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, es- essentially, I think what we're saying there is that y- you can hold Iron Man 3 up and go, this is an example of what you can achieve when you when you let a good director work within this system. Um and <laughs> well, crucially, when a good director is willing to put aside their creative ego and you know, yeah, but is but is, but is potentially strong enough also to still get their vision through there. So obviously, yeah. you've seen like we we know he had to he had to relent and he had to um, take a step back when it came to his female villain, um, and you would imagine he had to do other stuff in there, but. You you watch scenes you watch scenes like that and you know you watch scenes with the kid and you watch scenes like the patter with Don Cheadle once he gets going and <laughs> so that kind of after after Rhodey I was, turns up I was wondering up, when we were going to get onto that for James but. yeah Rhodey <laughs> turns up and this becomes a kind of a Shane Black buddy movie for twenty oh. thirty minutes and it's uh, <laughs> it's just yeah you're, you're like. Yes, this is what I've been waiting for for so long. This is what Terence Howard said next time, baby. For you know, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like he's you know he's he he's decent at, at what he gets in Iron Man two, but like this is the uh, the Don Cheadle <laughs> War Machine <laughs> movie, <Finest> hour. <laughs> and, and still is because we haven't had anything anything approaching proper War Machine since. I mean, his scenes in Avengers two are great, but. Yeah, not enough of them. Yeah, they're they're glorified cameos, aren't they? But he is really fun. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. is really fun when he turns up, and then I think I think they do him wrong in Civil War, personally. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's such a goofy gag. But again, the War Machine rocks joke. Just, I just remember <laughs> that getting so possibly my favorite joke laugh. in all in any Marvel film. I've never tr- I've never tried logging into any of James's online accounts. Which that's where War Machine rocks, but I should give it a go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and anything anything else with the roadie stuff? I mean that that whole sequence. I mean I'm I'm trying to remember because Rhodey turns up and he's kind of he's been like melted out of the suit by Aldrich almost, isn't he? While Tony is waiting for his suit to arrive. And all of that kind of stuff that builds up to that. I mean, that that scene with Tony is wonderful. The like waiting for the suit to arrive, and then you cut back to the barn, and the kid, the kids looking at the barn, just still vibrating after just what like one piece is. To, and <laughs> all of that, and Tony, <laughs> Tony doing the classic, like the classic, like hero, like it, it's the like you know, the, almost it's like the last Boy Scout. Yo, you touch me again, I'll I'll kill you. Uh, or like a bunch of, I mean that that's Shane Black, isn't it? And a, and a bunch of those other like you know like a, a a hero who we know is a badass and we know in a second is going to absolutely unleash on these faceless goons who are looking after him. Like who are these guys? How are they going to keep Iron Man in? <laughs> and it, they time that scene so well. It's like it's like it's like Sideshow Bob ste- stepping on rakes. When is Tony going to stop stepping on rakes in that scene? <laughs> And he steps on a good six or seven before the suit turns up, and then we we just get the like I just work for these guys. I think they're really weird. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so like so much of it is really weed esque as well. 
Yeah, well, I think there's... A... Like, I feel like I've seen a lot of those jokes on Buffy. There's a con- but... there's a conscious continuation of what the kind of vibe that they'd obviously hit on in the Avengers being successful. This this film will have been developed kind of alongside the Avengers while Joss Whedon was working yeah, on the script. Yeah. And um, they put this, they probably knew kind of what they I mean, were doing. I mean, this was... But it's, it's Buffy this was even it's during Buffy the period but where... It's also, it's also just... It's also just Shane Black-esque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it's that tradition is more what I meant rather than it's Joss Whedon specifically. Mm. And, and Like, it's that sort of thing of being aware of action tropes and using them, but also undercutting and subverting them and playing with expectation. And, like, it's the kind of thing when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. first... Ed and I can't remember how early it was, but maybe episode four or five had a genuine like he's behind me, isn't he? Moment, uh. and they were behind them, <laughs> and it's like, like I don't care who you are. Like, there's no excuse for doing that scene for anyone older than a five year old. The thing is, though, I mean, and the MCU has been guilty of this. Like, they have tried to do the Joss Whedon shtick with regularity i'll defend the film vehemently for almost everything else in it but the humor in doctor strange (laughs) doesn't hit and they're trying to do that with just a character and a story and like a start that it just it doesn't really seem to fit into and i think like well that's uh, what i mean like they're not they don't have the fundamentals so they can't play with them like that's the problem with doctor strange they're just doing it as rote yeah, and I, do, I think they they wisely kind of dialed it back as much as they could in the Captain America sequels, um, mm-hmm. and 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 then I think what they what they have cleverly done in some of their other films where the humor has been successful is uh, you look at a film like Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's not Joss Whedon humor. It's still it's still Marvel kind of slightly undercutting humor, slightly like wry aside humor. But but through the James Gunn lens, and it kind of looks like that's what Taika Waititi's doing with Thor Ragnarok from all the luck of the trailers. That, those gags, with, those gags. You don't watch the you don't watch the Thor Ragnarok trailer and go, "Oh, they're doing the Joss Whedon stick again." You kind of go, "Oh, that's 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 Taika's kind of thing." It, I mean, it's you say that like one of my favorite things about Angel in particular was like whenever Joss Whedon wrote Angel, he would make him be really like petty because that it was something funny about having this like 200 year old guy getting upset about small things like the way his haircut's being drawn or whatever and guardians of the galaxy and thor ragnarok look like the comedy is the comedy of pettiness like thor lying about his fight with the hulk yeah but I, or what? them arguing over where a bomb is being stored away. I I don't entirely disagree, but I think my point is that I think that Marvel really hit their comedy formula in they basically they basically had uh, Tony Stark playing his own form of jazz in the first two Iron Man movies, and and it worked. They found their comedy formula in the Avengers, and where it hasn't worked since is where they've tried to shoehorn that in where it has worked since mm-hmm. is where they have allowed <laughs> allowed their filmmakers to take that formula but then like 
transform it through their own prism as filmmakers. Yeah, well, like Scott writer, Derrickson. Scott Derrickson clearly not a comedy guy, so they brought in Dan Harmon, didn't they, to put the jokes in? Well, I'm, and I'm, that's why it was bad. I'm not sure how much Dan Harmon had to do with Thor Ragnarok, uh, with with <laughs> Doctor Strange. Ultimately, I think he works on the Dormammu sequence, and I think very little of what he did. Uh, if if what he says in his podcast is to believe to be believed, essentially what he did was he walked in and kind of went. Uh, maybe this is an idea I've got for that sequence. I think it was more structural than anything else. Weirdly, I don't think he went in and. I don't think. <laughs> I certainly don't think Dan Harmon wrote the Beyonce gag. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, I think one of the. I. I think we've we've died on our ass talking about this film in any kind of chronological pattern. So let's just <laughs> let's just pick out another another thread from the movie that I think tracks really well, start to finish. Um. And that's the Pepper Potts stuff again. Um, I was going to say, when, when, when will we going to get onto Pepper, given this podcast's general professed love for that character? She <laughs> she's great, and um, I, I've got. To say, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this on the podcast. I really love, it. and this is a production spoilery kind of leak, very minor from Avengers: Infinity War, that Pepper Potts, Gwyneth Paltrow has been pictures on set and Pepper is wearing the engagement ring. So that scene at the end of Spider-Man Homecoming was literally the proposal sequence, which <laughs> I just adore. And it's just yet another one of those moments that proves Seb wrong about Civil War. Yeah, I digress. And <laughs> I just... Um, I, I I think Shane Black referred to it as like... Or it might have been Drew Pierce referred to it as like... they They kind of just set Danny Jr. and Paltrow off and it's kind of like their their Billy Wilder kind of chemistry just like it just happens so they kind of like can just leave leave them leave them ch- chirps in a way and apparently the scene where Maya Hansen turns up at the house the original cut of that scene was nine minutes and there was very little <laughs> in the way of script it was just yeah st- Stark and Potts bouncing off each I mean, other and, and it's 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 adorable we, we, we could be here 20 years from now with a load more movies under our belt, and I would, I would never be sick of scenes of Tony and Pepper uh, as played by those two. It, it's just this, it's just this. Because they have that chemistry, chemistry. don't they? Like, yeah, the, and it's just so. Fu- and it's not even, it's not even chemistry in like a, a sexual tension kind of no. way. Or that, I mean, that, that is. Well, kind it's of comedic there. chemistry. Yeah, like, exactly. That's, it's that's why it so works because it's like great. that screwball, like forties screwball chemistry. But it's also I mean, the I mean, kind of the, the ease and the the kind of. They feel like two people who have known each other for years, who feel so comfortable around each other, who know they can kind of play with each other and push each other's buttons. And it it feels like a, a real relationship, which is, you know, not, it's not it's not easy. <laughs> it's excessively rare yes. in genre movies, let, or in any movie, let alone genre movies. And, and this, this real, especially when the stuff they're talking about is so comic booky and sci-fi and fantasy and, and, and essentially nonsense. Like that, like it, it shines through as something as something real and lived in. What mm-hmm. what I really like about uh, Pepper in this film is okay. I mean, you could potentially use it as a criticism of the fact that we don't see it or we don't see enough of it. But basically, Pepper has got her own movie and her own story that runs in parallel with this, which is. You, you you could genuinely do a movie with, with Pepper Potts as the lead character that runs parallel to Iron Man 3 because Pepper is in this situation where she is the CEO of Stark Industries. Um, 
her boyfriend is becoming a total wreck and she's having to deal with that. Um, a guy she used to work with who had a thing for her turns up, turns out to be a villain and is set into opposition to her. He attacks her, injects her with a superhero thing, she gets superpowers, she saves the day and she sorts things out with her boyfriend. It's like she 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 completely has a story that runs throughout the duration <laughs> I mean, of the events. I mean it's worth pointing out film. as well. It's just like, that we keep checking in on her occasionally as it goes on. But like her her arc in the film like the film in fact ends with her defeating Killian like definitively. Like she literally gets the last punch in. Yeah. Which I think is a really, it feels like a really deliberate moment. Like, it's not an accident that sh- that, that happens to be the case. It feels like the film giving her that moment very deliberately. Apparently there was a there was a sequence that was cut from the film that was going to happen early on that was almost going to be like, the introduction of Pepper was almost going to be like her own mini movie that like the film kind of acknowledging that she was having her own kind of like side adventures at, this, at the time and that like, you know that that she. Well, was, there you go. I mean, it's, yeah. I didn't know that was the case, but that's that is how it comes across. Yeah, yeah and I mean, certainly, we we can use this to kind of feed straight into the final battle, um, the final sequence, which is again another one of those examples like the Maya Hansen stuff, which for me, I I can't give a a five star judgment on a movie that has such glaring issues in its third act. And I think the the Pepper stuff, it just doesn't quite track for me right at the end. I think it tracks... I think the the relationship between Peter... Uh, Peter, between Tony and Pepper works. <laughs> and that tracks the whole way through. I just don't for a, a, a second think anyone ever watching this movie thought that Pepper was dead. Um... Mm. And I I think that whole that whole final act on paper sounds so much more exciting and so much and so much more like there's so much more going on than the than there was at least at that stage and to an extent mostly in the MCU I think I think they're getting better at their at their third acts uh, despite the last one being one of their worst um, but. It all feels just so... I think it just feels too static and contained on that rig, which is... It feels like if you had that sequence maybe expanding over a larger area almost, but, like, I don't know. It's There's something about that setting that feels almost too constrained to me, and they they don't have as much fun with the space given the setup as I expect them to have. And, and and again, because it's Tony fight, fighting Aldrich, almost uh, everything on paper kind of works for me. The fact that he's falling in and out of his suits and that, like, that is the whole theme of the movie and and that he is fighting the kind of the villain behind the villain. And I've got to say, I love the I love the realisation of the extremist virus and I love it when all... I love James Badgedale. I love the Terminator-esque woman that he fights in the small town, in the in the kitchen... Um, uh, Rebecca Maida randomly turns up for one scene and then disappears and isn't seen from again. Um, I kind of I love all of that visually and I love those villains. I I'd almost kind of prefer to see Tiny fighting James Badgedale at the end of the movie. I think he he <laughs> might he might emerge from the movie as the most as as the best villain of the piece, especially especially because he like emotionally affects us by doing what he does to Happy. 
I've, yeah, I feel like there's a, there's a slight. I mean, obviously Tony sort of gets his revenge on that. And in, incidentally, there's a very Tony very deliberately kills here. It's not like consequence of battle shooting wildly. It's like he straight up kills the guy deliberately. Yeah, but, I, they, but they I do are, feel they're like walking there's... WMDs, aren't they? I think. He, oh no! There's... Yeah, I don't know. And it's and it's you know. And the point is, it's like Iron Iron Man is not a character that has that problem in the sense of like I don't think it breaks the character if Iron Man kills people I think he's he's like Captain America in that sense um but I do think it's it's a shame that you don't get um that I I think because the whole happy versus I don't even know the character's name but happy versus James Badgedale yeah he um, does begins with the sequence where he's sitting really lackadaisically in the lobby of Stark Industries and you feel like from that moment Happy deserves a moment where he gets to get one up on that guy but he never does so that's a slight shame that you, that that never gets to culminate um yeah. but you know um yeah I agree I I think sort of um yeah he's his he's got a nicely dickish menacingness about him throughout uh, you just like this guy just enjoys being an asshole, basically. <laughs> I mean, I do like I do want to take issue with the idea a that the third act doesn't work because I think it's like it's my probably even the superhero rescue stuff notwithstanding, like just getting to see all those Iron Man suits. Uh, in yeah, action no, James. Enough James, that's to that's, make me you, love it. That's 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 James porn right there. It's just like <laughs> we've discussed this in the past, like when we've done our um, awards episodes, and and we've gone best costume, and me and Seb, maybe me more than Seb, have gone the Iron Man costume, and you've gone specifically Iron Man Mark Six. Which because which one were you talking about? <laughs> this is this is your superhero porn. I, I just I think it honestly I think it's a failure of direction. I don't think Shane Black is massively well equipped to direct uh big cg action set pieces um i think the 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 one where the where iron man's falling from the plane the barrel of monkey sequence is is executed because it's it's actually is remarkably simple on the face of it um and it's an exercise in tension more than anything whereas the third act has to be an ex- exercise in spectacle and I think it falls short on that. I just, I just don't think it's very. I just don't think it's very kinetic or visually compelling, considering See, I considering think, the elements that they have to play with. I think you're maybe saying like you're assuming it's one thing, whereas it's actually not, like you're saying okay, it's a third act, so it should be spectacle. But maybe the intention was more chaos, because like there comes a point where you have to think: Is Shane Black? aiming for spectacle and missing or is he going for chaos and succeeding like i think i, I presumably I he knew it, what he was doing I, I don't think it matters i think ultimately it's a sequence that i lose interest in uh, so that's that's the long and short of it and i think the 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 pepper death in the middle of it well uh, no, i have to disagree with this as well though because when like going into the movie there was so much talk about like shane black saying he was making a darker movie and everyone was like Gwyneth Paltrow's contract's about to be up, like, she's gonna die. So when that scene happened, it was... I like, don't think... Personally, I, I wasn't know. there you, thinking, okay, you, she's dead. But also... I don't think so. There was so I much talk around her. She's injected with the extremist stuff. Well, yeah, sure. But, and that all gets, again... that all gets brushed under the carpet as well, doesn't it? Like, that just... I think that's, I think that's one of my other problems with the film, and I will maintain this, <laughs> is that the last five you... minutes just goes, and this, <laughs> oh, and this, yeah, and this, and this, the end. 
<laughs> the the end. We're all done now. That was fine. Do you remember all? Do you remember all of that stuff? I mean, you don't know that she's not got extremists when she next turns up. No, no, we don't. But like, it's not mentioned. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe um, it doesn't matter. Maybe she's just. Maybe she's still off having her own superhero adventures, and that's re- <laughs> that's really why she wasn't there in Civil War. They- I mean, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Like, I I would love nothing more than for Avengers three to have Pepper in the rescue armor. Yeah, that would be cool. Because I think Gwyneth Paltrow as a character has done enough to deserve. Like, the arc is there for her to have a suit of armor of her own equally i don't think she needs it i think she's pretty i think she's pretty awesome uh regardless but sure but <laughs> you know suits of armor maybe maybe we're just gonna superhero porn maybe we're just gonna disagree on the on the third act stuff it's just it didn't work for me at the time and on a rewatch it's kind of the moment that like i start to i start to disengage uh, I, no, see, I I spent the whole film waiting to see all that action and waiting to see Pepper get her moment and stuff. Like it's what it's the bit I like the most. Fair enough. Is it, it all coming to a head? And also just because some great jokes in that sequence, not least, uh, Rhodey waiting for his suit and him being like, "No, sorry, I haven't got one for you." Where do you I, I, where do you I, I like it, Pe- Seb? I I like Pepper just going. Oh my god, that was so violent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think <coughs> it sounds like I fall somewhere between the middle of you two, but I think I think for an action sequence of that type, it's got lots of really nice moments and generally plays out well. And I agree that it's really great to have Pepper get the moments that she does. Equally, I think, and and especially on a rewatch, I think it could stand to be a bit shorter. Um, as as these things usually do, but yeah, especially because in a weird sort of structural thing, like I mean, the Barrel of Monkey set piece is amazing, but it comes at a quite strange point in the movie in terms of when you would expect your big climactic action sequences to happen. It's it's too late to be the middle one, and it's too early to be the last one. Um, but I don't really mind because it's so amazing when it happens but i think um generally like um, maybe the word weird is the wrong word to use i was going to say structurally this is a weird film it's not that it's weird in and of itself it's that it's it doesn't (laughs) follow the usual pattern that doesn't mean it's weird it just means it's uh, i mean that's again that's something i like about the film is that Mm. it goes away from that thing of like big intro down bit in the middle yeah the the safer cat um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then there's the bit where everything goes wrong and it's all downbeat, and then there's a triumphant action sequence that lasts for half an hour. Hmm. It's like it. I mean, it has again, that I, stuff. I've said but before, it but it's, it's, it's idiosyncratic, mm. and it's it doesn't feel like every other movie, and that's something that Marvel, especially, have been mm. difficult with. Okay, well, we've been talking about this film for a long time, so I think we should begin to wrap things up. I want to I want to blast through a couple of things. Uh, and get your thoughts on them that I either uh, really like or think don't work about this movie. Uh, so I'll start off with something that um, I- I'm most confident that you're going to agree with me doesn't really work. Um, the Adam Pally cameraman sequence in the van. It, it, w- what are your thoughts? <laughs> Sorry, did you say you think that doesn't work? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Like, Mr. Four, it's a comedy Mr. sketch. Mr. Four Stars, I've really said. 
<laughs> Again, can't say anything that, you, that that James is willing to criticize about the film. I was I was editorially mandated down from five. <laughs> uh, um, like it, like I say, it's a comedy sketch, but it's so funny. Like every time, yeah. <coughs> just, I like I it, a, what's a, wrong with it? I don't I don't see what's wrong with it. I just think I, I think, mean Tony Tony Starley kind of slightly misjudges it for me. I, it, I, maybe in terms of how it's played, but I think it's nice to have. Um, a moment where that reminds you that it, it's the thing of it's like what I like seeing done with Spider-Man in the right circumstances. I like these characters having fans. I and, think, and, <laughs> and Iron Man is a character that makes sense to do that. With. I think we've so. already had it with the kid, and I think what's nice with the kid is that the kid almost kind of t- tries to pretend that he doesn't know who Tony Stark is. Like, mm. yeah, he knows who Iron Man is, but he doesn't recognize Tony Stark. And I kind of, yeah. I get, I get the sense certainly in that sequence that the kid's trying to play it cool. And so I don't, re- I don't really feel that I need this sequence. I think it's interesting that you started to have this kind of run of these. I remember like a Tumblr meme with all of these sort of um, these these characters popping up for these little comedy bits. Um, I mean, the the Tumblr meme included um, the I can't remember his name, but the English. Um, uh, scientist uh, intern bloke from Thor 2 and then you've got the Apple Store guy in Winter Soldier as well. Yeah, the guy um, from these... Derek, Derek Comedy. Yeah, <laughs> so like these these little sort of comedy insert characters. Well, the, Rus- and... the Russos have stuck their community and characters in there from time to time, the Arrested Development gags. I think probably yeah. when you just work with a lot of comedy people, you're probably going to get a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of comedy cameos here and there. Yeah, but, but yeah, I, you're, I, you're so right. This, this, this probably isn't the is best the best one of those because Apple Store is the best one of those. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's fine. It's not the funniest bit of the film, but I don't think it it brings it down. That's the thing. Like I, I think one thing that makes me like the Iron Man film so much is that they're essentially action comedies, and like they're not. It's not that they have good one-liners. It's like sometimes they just veer into outright comedy. Like even. It, to the expense of the character sometimes like you have that bit where like tony stark doesn't know how to use a pistol all of a sudden and like some that rubs some people the wrong way but for me i'm just like it's funny so i don't care that it doesn't make any sense that tony stark wouldn't know how to load a gun hmm. it's, and it's it's like it's funny specifically because you've got roadie having a go at him yeah at yeah exactly so it's it's worth it for that yeah and so like any any time the films take time out to just be comedies like it doesn't matter. That's the stuff I love. Okay, I'm go- I'm gonna continue my quest to get James to agree on something that doesn't quite work about the movie. Um, <laughs> Miguel Ferrer needed a bit more screen time for the vice president thing to work on a plot level. Yeah, it's just it's not really there, is it? It sort of it feels like maybe one step too far. Yeah, it's it's I... kind of it's relying on the casting to tell the story for you. Yeah. Some, I mean, similar, you could kind of say the same thing about the president. I think there's an interesting thing to be done there with the fact that he's not a perfect, perfectly good president. Um, I'm, I, I'm I, cannot, think... I cannot buy William Sadler as the president of the United States. I mean, I can't buy Donald Trump as the president of the United States, <laughs> but maybe even William Sadler even more. I'm, I'm, I'm just delighted to see William Sadler because, yeah, as well, that's we all nice. know, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is one of the greatest movies ever made, <laughs> and he's one of the best things about it. So I will always, you know, if William Sadler turns up in something, I'm just like in awe of him. Well, so, here you go, Seb. He uh, has reprised this role in three episodes of Marvel's Agents. I Shield. gather, yes. I might have to actually. Well, I'm not going to actually watch those episodes. I, even I have limits. Yeah. Now, if, if it was Alex Winter in those episodes, you, oh, you might get me. Yeah. But. Hello. Um, 
Okay, and then and then the thing that I want to talk about that I unequivocally love about this movie. Um, I like the fun that Shane Black has with just it's a Shane Black movie, so it's set at Christmas and there's a voiceover narration. You, you can you can <laughs> suck that up. I don't care that it's been released re- released in July. It's set at Christmas, never impacts the plot. Most of it takes place in Miami, so it doesn't look or feel like <laughs> doesn't look or feel like Christmas. Um, and like it's about terrorism. It's about as far as you can get from a Christmas movie. He commits to it, and then I love that the voiceover exists, and you kind of forget that like the voiceover has even been a thing. And then that post credit sting <laughs> is wonderful. Do you know what's so great about it? I realised that from this from uh, on a, more on a rewatch, and again, it's one of those things that, with the context of what's come since, like if you think back to the Incredible Hulk and <laughs> how nothingy the Ed Norton Bruce Banner character is in that film, to have reached a point where Bruce Banner is the character that you drop into a Marvel film to make it funnier. Not the Hulk. Bruce Banner. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, Hulk slash Bruce Banner, because I'm thinking also of Thor Ragnarok. Although even then, like with the trailers, obviously you've got that first trailer, which is fantastic because the Hulk turns up. And then you've got that second trailer where Bruce Banner is in it and is just being absolutely hilarious. It's just like, <laughs> it, I've just got so much love for Mark Ruffalo and the way he plays that role. And just that thing of... <laughs> I just love that Mark Ruffalo just wanders around these films in a daze and is just like constantly funny doing so. It's just I would say so though, like great. before his Marvel stuff, I would kind of almost say that like Mark Ruffalo is not massively dissimilar to being a male Rebecca Hall, you know, that 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 he kind of delivers these great performances time after time, is kind of good even when he's in bad stuff, can turn up as this supporting character and something like uh, Shutter Island I'm just thinking of, or I don't know, a bunch of stuff. Um or or he or he can be the lead in something smaller, he can be great. Um, but Mark Ruffalo is able to go on and become the Incredible Hulk and be and be like <laughs> one of the, one of the centerpieces of Marvel's franchise, and Rebecca Hall gets unceremoniously shot and dragged off screen, never to be seen from again. It's a little bit depressing, but you are right to praise Ruffalo, who is um, fantastic. I do have one slight thing which I could level as a criticism of this film: um, the fact that it's got Bill Mayer in it, and Bill Mayer is. Kind of a bit of a shit in some ways. So. Spill Ma, right? Ma, sorry, Ma. Yeah, no, yeah I don't know. It's well, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure Iron Man Two has a cameo in the background from um, uh, what's his face, Bill O'Reilly. So, uh, these yeah, although from- Bill O'Reilly's kind of more honestly a bit of a shit. I think my my, <laughs> my issue with Bill Maher is that he sort of pretends to be on. He's anyway. just. It's, he's it's just, a whole thing. He's just a left wing shit. I, 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 yeah, I have a thing about people who, uh, on the one hand, claim to be anti-right wing, but on the other hand, claim to be anti-political correctness. So you know, anyway, it's 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 the South Park thing, really. Yeah. Um, shall anyway. we? Shall we give? <laughs> shall we give James the last word on this movie? James, deliver that five-star review that you wanted to deliver four years ago. <laughs> I mean, my review as I wrote it was four stars. It was it was five stars. It was purely the rating that got changed, not the actual content of the review. <laughs> I just, like I've said all that I need to really in that. Like the things I love about it are that it's original, yet respectful of the genre. Like it, it executes the tropes while undercutting them. Like just it, 
I can't imagine anyone wanting anything more out of like it's full of fan service as well like it's got everything you could possibly want out of a movie and for me it's with the possible exception of the first guardians it's as good as marvel has been since since it came out and like it's sort of four years on it's kind of worrying me that they're never going to be that good again um, because Iron Man three for me is just so far beyond almost everything else they've done. So it's your it's your second favorite MCU movie. Uh, it's like the top three always jostle, but like my top three are definitely this Avengers and Iron Man one. Yeah, and and Se- well, I mean, I think we all agree it's our favorite Iron Man movie. Seb, where does it sit for you? Um, as I say, I mean, I think, I think, is it still, it's probably still top five. I think my, my top three are, uh, again, not certain of the order because it will vary, but it's, uh, Avengers, Guardians and Winter Soldier for me. Yeah. So I, I, th- this probably, depending on my mood, could sit fourth or fifth. Um, yeah, it's jostling it's, with a couple of others. It's four for me, sand, sandwiched between Guardians of the Galaxy and Winter Soldier. Um, obviously, Avengers and First Avenger are one and two. Um, <sighs> I'm I'm trying to let that go because <laughs> you clearly feel strongly about it. I, yeah, Can no, I, I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> we, Can we, I... we did a whole podcast about it. <laughs> yep, I still we... remain unconvinced. You want bad third acts, there's your film. Um, so it's fine, could, it's fine, I'm letting it go. Before we go on to the next section, uh, can I make you guys aware that a piece of news has yes, come out? Yes, I've, I've got it, go I've got it, it. I've, you got I've, it? I've got it queued up and we're doing it. Oh, right, okay, fine. James, don't Google it. I'm not going to, I'm <laughs> very excited. <laughs> to experience at the moment. We'll do it right after the podcast. Do you okay. want to do it and drop it in, or do you want yes, to do it I'll at drop this it. point I'll, in no, the order? I'll, I'll drop it in. Okay. We will have to be quick because I, yeah, I we will don't be want quick. to be too we'll be much quick. after 11. But no, yeah. me either. Um, okay, uh, so that was Iron Man 3. Uh, guys, what are your comic book recommendations for me this week? Um, J- James, we'll, we'll start with you. What are you recommending okay. me based on Iron Man 3, given, as I should remind our audience, that you guys recommended me the Extremis arc after Iron Man 1. So that is already off the table. Um, so if you, if uh, listeners, Extremist probably is a recommendation for this podcast. If you didn't read it back when we covered Iron Man 1, go read it now. It's quite good, even though Marvel Unlimited does some weird stuff with the pages on there. <laughs> okay, so Joe, I'm going to give you two comics. Um, one is a bit longer than average and one's a bit shorter than average. So <laughs> it should the... even help. Yeah, it should even out. There we go. It's probably going to turn out I was right. Yeah, okay. So the first is Tales of Suspense 50, which is the first ever appearance of the actual Mandarin. Um, So that's going to be a half-issue story, I think, because it's when back when it was a split book. Um, So you'll get to see what the, the real Mandarin is like or was like when he was first introduced, which I think will be uh, an education in itself. <laughs> and to contrast that, uh, the second comic I'm going to recommend is Invincible Iron Man Annual 1, which is from 2010 and came out uh, as part of Matt Fraction's run on Iron Man. And this is a, a story 
in which the Mandarin uh, kidnaps a filmmaker to make the movie of his life. Oh yeah, I've, I you you must have referenced this on the podcast before. I'm sure you have. Yeah, because it, it's basically that or I've heard um, former podcast Al Kennedy discussing it on. Uh, House it's entirely yeah, it's entirely possible. But this is this was essentially Matt Fraction going like, okay, we all know the Mandarin is a racist caricature. How do we do that? in the modern context right and also it's it's interesting because there's a kind of meta commentary you can read into it on uh (laughs) being a an indie writer working for marvel which is an interesting take right okay on the story so i'd like you to keep that in mind when you read it as well yeah i'll be honest i've i've heard about this before i've uh always clocked it as oh i'd quite like to read that so that's good that's one that um, was already kind of out there is something that I would like to read, <laughs> but as always happens with those comics, I don't actually end up reading them unless you tell me to. So fantastic! Yeah. So I mean, those are my, that's my pair of recommendations, like a couple of Mandarin stories. Brilliant. Okay, so Seb, what have you got for me? So I'm breaking format um, because the whole oh. point of this podcast is that we are supposed to recommend to you, Joe, a movie guy. Uh, the comics behind the movies, but the, right. So we should talk. The reason the reason you recommended me Extremist back on the first Iron Man podcast was you were like the both of you were like there aren't actually that many good Iron Man exactly. stories. I mean, I I will I will sort of still hold to the notion that Extremist is a better recommendation for the first Iron Man film than than this one because while it does have the name of the Extremist concept and while there are character names that the film took from that storyline. The story is completely different, as you know, because you read it. The point of that extremist Warren Ellis storyline is that it's essentially a reinvention of Iron Man's origin, which is what the movie is, so it it fits better with the the first movie. Uh, But yeah, as we've discussed now twice, because this is our third Iron Man podcast, there really aren't very many good Iron Man comics. Certainly there are very few that are as good as the movies. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I think there are, you know... There are notable ones, and it's like we've never got you to do Demon in a Bottle, um, but they, there are notable ones, but they don't really hold up. Um, so I'm going to go in a completely different direction, and I'm going to recommend that you watch a TV series, uh, which we we could get around to doing it on the podcast eventually, but I'm not sure if we would, so um, let's let's have you do it on a mini-episode. And it is called No Heroics, and it is a sitcom that was uh, ITV2's first original sitcom commission uh, <laughs> from 2008, and it was created by Drew Pierce. So if you want to know what Drew Pierce's background in terms of an interest in comics is, then watch No Heroics. It is a six-episode sitcom that, like, five people watched, and I think with the DVDs... <laughs> two of them are on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think with the DVDs, they only printed about five copies, because if you go looking for it on the internet, the DVDs are insanely expensive to get hold of. I only have it on DVD because I have a, a review disc copy. I don't even have the case for it. <laughs> um, Do you know, it, we have a copy on DVD because we bought it as a present for someone and forgot to give it to them for so long, we just thought, <laughs> oh, we should probably keep this. And if you gave it to them now, they could sell it on eBay for like 50 quid. Yeah. Um, prob- <laughs> probably to Drew Pierce, because back when he was on Twitter, I remember Drew Pierce complaining about how difficult it was to find DVD copies <laughs> of it. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to build it up too much, because it's not the greatest 
sitcom ever and it's not the greatest superhero comedy ever i mean like it's not as good as the tick for example it's no it's no my hero <laughs> god yeah yeah it is definitely the best ever british superhero sitcom <laughs> of of the two that we've ever had but it's it's fun it's sort of it's not really about superheroes it's about a group of friends down the pub because it's not about what they do when they're superheroes it's about what they do in their downtime and and it's mostly set in and around the pub that all the superheroes hang around in um i think it's uh, there's there's an element of it you know sort of being lo- it's it's that thing of you know the kind of the word the pub where everyone who works in a particular industry all end up gathering like you get it with comics and i'm sure you get it with like actors and tv types as well of you know certain haunts that are you know that they all hang out so it's not that they all work together or even that they're all friends with each other but they all hang out there um it's got a pretty good cast it's got nicholas burns um from nathan barley is is a pretty pathetic superhero called the hotness with um flame powers uh, James Lance is in it. Um, Patrick Ballady, who is always good at playing smug assholes, plays like the Superman equivalent, essentially, <laughs> and is a smug asshole. Um, Claire Keelan is excellent um, as a kind of bolshy northerner, again, as she is always good at playing. Um, it's just, you know, it is kind of, it maybe stretches a bit thinly over six episodes, but there's good jokes in it. There's a lot of superhero nerdery not really again in the kind of dialogue and the characters but like in the background and sort of you know all the kind of drinks in the bar are themed after sort of superhero stuff and 2000 ad stuff and things like that so um it's just it as i say it's like i'd hesitate to call it like this great lost sitcom um but if you like superheroes and comics it it is it's it's worth seeing and it and it is a lot of fun um and it is a shame that it was. It should have at least had a bit more attention than it got. You know, something something we didn't point out actually is that Drew Pierce came to Marvel by way of a Runaway spec script. Mm. Yeah, he was going to do a, a Runaways movie, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, and that was obviously that didn't end up happening, but he ended up on. Because it is weird that he's ended up doing this, having been the guy who did the superhero sitcom for ITV two, for him to have gone on to do <laughs> Iron Man three and one of the actually successful Mission Impossible films is... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, well, we'll have to wait and see whether his treatment actually ends up in the Runaways TV show or any, anything that he contributed ends up in the Runaways TV show, but probably kept the idea burning because I don't think there's been a Drew Pierce interview ever where he hasn't been asked, uh, so what's happening <laughs> with Runaways? <laughs> okay, so we've got some Iron Man comics and um, a British sitcom to watch. Uh, and Seb, just uh, don't don't forget about Banana Man and Super Ted and Misfits. We've got a, we've got a rich heritage of superheroes on British TV. Not um, si- Misfits is not a sitcom. <laughs> it's not far off. It's, it's it's really not. I think it's more it's more com than drama. Anyway, um, anyway. Let's uh, let's move on to our final section, which is the pitch. And I, I mean, basically, I, I couldn't think of anything else to ask here because after watching Iron Man three, you know, you, you're just dominated by that scene, thinking about the Mandarin and the Trevor's Lattery reveal. So I want to know which other supervillain you would like to see deconstructed on screen in a similar way uh, to the Mandarin. And uh, Seb, I'll come back to you first. 
Well, okay. The thing I'm not sure about with this one is, am I allowed yes. to... <laughs> Given everything that we said on our last episode, am I allowed to basically t- uh, pitch the idea that I already pitched when we were discussing the Joker movie of a movie that basically does the king of comedy but with the Joker and looks at him as a figure that the media becomes obsessed with. Now, the reason why I ask if I'm allowed to is not am I allowed to re-pitch that because I think that should be allowed. Am I allowed to pitch a Joker movie when I already talked at great length about how I don't want them to do another Joker movie? (laughs) No, you can. You can. It just absolutely might affect your chances of winning. (laughs) Well, that's my. I, I, I think that there should be a film about the media's relationship with the Joker in the Batman universe and and that's that's how I would deconstruct that character. We'll call it fake news. Uh James, <laughs> can you outdo the uh the the king of comedy Joker movie? I mean, I feel like I'm going to go for a choice that you're going to be so unfamiliar with you'll have no choice but to award the winter set. <laughs> but I'm going to try it anyway. I'm going to do a rare instance of actually taking this seriously. Um so one of the X-Men villains that they haven't yet done that I think, I mean, they all, they were sort of promising it, but it's not oh, yet turned I know up, who you're gonna say. is Mr. Sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I know Mr. Sinister. Have you read any comics with Mr. Sinister in? Yeah. Not okay. You said he was in Secret Wars when I read that. I've seen him pop up in a couple of stories not <laughs> never i've never actually seen him as like the protagonist or anything or the an- the main antagonist anyway but i know his vibe yeah. i get his vibe so like his thing when he first turned up was like he was obsessed with the summer's family dna and spent a lot of time cre- creating x-men clones and then kieran gillen did a thing with him where he went back to the character's roots and said like Okay, so Sinister is a Victorian geneticist who has gained immortality. Like, can we deconstruct the character in a way that takes these ideas that the Victorians had about sort of structured society and, uh, like, the newly discovered field of genetics and stuff and use that as a way to sort of show the inherent immorality of that approach to society and sort of the flaws of British, the British class system slash empire. And I would really like to see an X-Men movie in which the, the X-Men as a kind of self-made American kids fight against the sort of Victorian patriarchy that birthed their, you know, birthed their nation to some extent. Hmm. Um, because I think if you're doing Mr. Sinister, it's hard to do him just as a raving mad scientist who likes making clones because that's not a movie. <laughs> but, you know, kids fighting the previous generations, like changing morality and, and you know, differing, differing way of viewing the world. Like that's an interesting interesting take on the character so i think if you're gonna do mr sinister that's how i would deconstruct him to be movie ready i, th- I think to be honest james has even put more thought into his than, than my backup choice for if i didn't go with the joker <laughs> one because even then my, my backup choice was nicked from an existing comic um which was to take loki 
and uh, have a storyline in which Loki manipulates reality so that you're not actually sure if he really exists or not, <laughs> kind nice. of like in Ultimates 2. <laughs> which I don't know if you've read yet, Joe. I know you read Volume 1. Do you read Volume 2 as well? No, not yet. Okay, spoilers. Uh, Loki <laughs> is the villain in that one. <laughs> but, well, I think just just because he believes in his pitch, he believes it should be made... I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go with James this week. I mean, yes. I, I, I've, I've no doubt that mine could be a really great movie, but I also, yeah, from a just you know, from an um, what's the word? Not moral point of view. Anyway, I, I disagree with the premise of making it, even though I think it would be great. So <laughs> I feel I, I don't feel hard done by for James to win. This is going to make it all the more disappointing when they bring out the next X Men film and Sinister is in the first scene and then gets killed off. <laughs> um. This is this is not me joining the pitch. This is just a, a kind of a spin-off because this wasn't part of the pitch. I'd like to see this done with a hero and I'd like to see it done in season two of Iron Fist where they embrace what... The fact that what, everyone hates Iron no, Fist. No, not even, not even <laughs> that everyone hates Iron Fist. That the show, everyone keeps telling him, you're the worst Iron Fist ever and actually make it the through line of the show of what if a superhero but bad... Like what if a super, Ooh, what if a superhero um... but really bad at his job? We've I don't think we've ever seen that on screen. Certainly, just like no, what, sure. what if he wants? What if he really wants? He's going out there with the right intentions to do what he needs to do as this superhero. He's got all the powers that he's got, but what if he's just not made of the right stuff? But I mean, yet, but a... yet he's got this responsibility. That's kind of Evangelion, isn't it? I mean. It... There's an interesting thing in uh, comics where there's a... You know Captain Britain, the superhero? Mm-hmm. He, like, part of his becoming Captain Britain is that you're given a choice as to whether you take the uh, sword of might or the amulet of right. And there was one version of Captain Britain that unfortunately never really got followed up on. But it was, what would happen if you were Captain Britain but you made the wrong choice there? Mm-hmm. So she took the sword of right, uh, sword of might, and it was like that would have been a really great story, but because of the circumstances of its creation, it never really ran its course. I like it though that it's not it's not anything to do with like Danny Rand as a person. Like he he wants to be the good guy. He wants yeah. he wants he's to be just, the superhero. He's, he's just, just bad. He he's just he's just crappy. crappy. He's just he's just not made of the right moral fibers. It's not that he's a bad guy. Or it's not that he he's just. He's not. He's just not made. I mean, he's, he's not, not even smart it. enough. He's not made to, of the Steve Rogers stuff. <laughs> he's not it's even funny. smart enough. All he had to do was to not, not the let the hand win was like he can't even ignite the Iron Fist at the best of times. And all he had to do was not ignite the Iron Fist in front of the magic door only he can open <laughs> by punching it, and he couldn't even manage that. Ah. A Defenders podcast is probably coming soon, by the way, yeah, and you can expect a lot of a lot of sighing along those lines. James, I mean, James I'm even more interested to, this one. <laughs> I'm even more interested to to hear you talk about no heroics after having said that you want to see a superhero thing about crap superheroes. Well, <laughs> yeah. part of the premise of no heroics is that they're all a bit shit. Yeah, actually, I could also go back to my hero. I oh, know he's a good superhero. He's just crap at life, isn't he? What a Adler Hanlon, what a classic. Okay, that's <laughs> it for this week's podcast. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, 
or your podcast app of choice and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Um, as we mentioned on the last episode, we have revised and streamlined our backing levels over there. Uh, we've also lined up some possibilities for some special extra bonus episodes that will be hitting the Patreon feed um, as and when we hit some short range targets on there. So if you would like to hear those extra episodes, head over there. Uh, go to the page and back us if that's something that you would like to do. Okay, uh, you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com uh, along with news, reviews and features by the three of us. That will be re-ramping up now. I've just, uh, as I think I mentioned in the last minisode, I've just moved to a different city and started a new job. Um, and whether I ever mentioned this on the podcast before, for the last year I've been working nights uh, and kind of like sleeping during the day so I've had a very odd schedule I'm back on a normal schedule and we're hoping to um, be a lot more regular with the podcast and a lot more regular with updates to the site uh, in terms of news features and reviews so stay tuned to all of that um, you can get in touch with us via Facebook uh, you can find us on Twitter at cine underscore verse or you can send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next week Goodbye. Bye. To answer your question, there are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems in a few minutes you will officially be the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, because you didn't break one bone. You don't have a scratch on you. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with... Unbreakable.